Moralia Python Radio with your hosts, Eric Burke and Owen McIntyre. Good evening, everybody, and happy Halloween. Uh, here we are uh, on our <laughs> come rain, come shine, come holiday. We still Whatever the here. hell's going on. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't matter. No matter what it is. Yeah, you know. I'm pretty sure I had a birthday on the air once, so, you know. Yeah, yeah. so did I. <laughs> uh, had birthdays, anniversaries, uh, yeah, well, birthday I, I parties. Think, <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure an episode fell on one of my girlfriend's birthdays that one year, and I got in trouble for that one. So, yeah, oh. no matter what, <laughs> NPR continues. That's right. Um, tonight, uh, we're joined by Justin Julander, and we're going to talk about his new book, uh, The Green Tree Python, Natural History and Captive Maintenance, which he co-authored with Terry, Terry Phillip, um, uh, which, should be, uh, which should be pretty good to dive into it. And, you know, one of the things that we're going to ask Justin is, you know, I'm curious. Why do you call how... it Snowflakes on the anniversary <laughs> show? Yeah. Yeah, and we're gonna get well, into that one. Yeah, don't you worry. <laughs> that's one thing, but that's one. Uh, oh, right. Sorry. The thing that I'm wondering is green tree pythons. I just when I think of green yeah. tree pythons, I don't think of Justin per se, uh, and I'm just curious on like what what drove him to want to put together the book, uh, you know, and how did that come about with Terry and whatnot. So, yeah. um. Still, all in all, uh, it's it's, uh, it's it's awesome that uh, that he did it. And um, if uh, you haven't gotten a copy, I would highly suggest uh, that you do. Why did you just all of a sudden mute? Can I hear you? I, I yeah, did. You Why are you muting yeah. me? Stop I it. don't know. Um, <laughs> but, didn't do anything uh, this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I put a, a link in the uh, show description. Uh, Australian addiction reptiles. You can go over to there and uh, you can uh, purchase a copy. Um, and I believe Justin has signed copies as well. Uh, so if you don't have this book and you are into green tree pythons or you're thinking about getting into green tree pythons, I would uh, highly recommend going and picking it up. Um, but in the meantime, uh, before we get Justin on, uh, I saw a picture on Facebook of you yes. with some beaded lizards. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, it's one of those things where, you know, Andrew calls me and he goes, uh, I got to go pick up this animal you want to come with. And this, again, will teach me not to read text messages quickly because he's like, I got to go pick up a beaded um, at a buddy's house. Uh, do you want to come with? And I thought I read it as beardy. So I'm like, I don't really want to, you know, it's a bearded dragon. Why do you even want a bearded dragon? So I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll come get you. And then I get him, we're, we're driving there. And I'm like, so what's so important or special about this beardy? And he goes, what? I'm like, why do you want this thing? He's like, it's a beaded. We're not getting a beardy. We're getting a beaded. I'm like, oh, oh, <laughs> everything immediately changed. And I'm like, oh, yeah. this went from a, this is a stupid trip to, oh, this is going to be fun. And uh, we go pick up the baby beaded and it was very calm, very well behaved. It was a little puffy, but nothing too horrible. You kind of had to restrain it a little bit to hold it. Just kind of make sure you're, you know, where you knew the head was at. Uh huh. He didn't fight you. He wasn't trying to move his head a lot. He wasn't trying to get around it. The only time he really put up a fight is when I went to go put him down. 
he wrapped his tail uh, kind of around my wrist so that I couldn't really kind of set him down. Cause I don't, yeah. So I just kept holding him. So almost like every time I put him, tried to go, he would like resist. So I just ended up just holding him for another 20 minutes. Um, very, very, very cool animal. And this uh-huh. is like, this is on the heels of Andrew getting uh, a few monkey tail skinks that I was kind of playing with and holding at the same time. So, uh-huh. you know, it's like monkey tails, which is something that I've never really had too many, too many close interactions with. And I'm like, I think it's kind of badass to a beaded, which is again, something else that I haven't really had any interactions with. I mean, I've, I've uh, worked with healers, but never beaded. And it was, it was different. Um, you know, a little bit longer, kind of the face and the tail. Uh, it was very cool to hold, very cool to kind of feel. And uh, so awesome. It's like, this is, we adore, we just, we were talking about beaded with, you know, uh, Casper and other stuff. So it's like, this thing is awesome. So I, uh, it furthered my, I should get on the beaded and Gila train. So unfortunately I need to get rid of some Nile monitors first. Yeah, could yeah. you put them in your display right in the front there? In your I room? will try. <laughs> it's, uh, maybe not the beaded because they get big, but Gila monsters uh, maybe because the mangroves that are in there now are pretty close, if not bigger, than a Gila monster. So okay. and they they seem to be doing fine in there. So I would shoot for that. I would shoot for Gila monsters because I think that'd be cool. are they are they difficult to take care of or is you still have to research I, it or what? I'm probably going to have to research it, but I didn't have any problems at the zoo. Uh, uh-huh. They normal. The problem I had was when, uh, if there was breeding introduction, if anybody was slightly smaller, <laughs> um, somebody might take a crack at eating somebody. So, oh. yeah. So I think that would be a thing. And of course that only ever happened. Uh, but one time we were moving the animals and I had a volunteer and I said, uh, um, secure the Gila monsters, and by secure the Gila monsters, he meant put. He thought I meant put them all in the same bin. And we had two adults and two. We had a, a pair of adults and a pair of juveniles. So when uh-huh. I came in, one of the adults had one of the juveniles like in its mouth. So, um, but that was something. Oh. Um, so uh, that's the only time I would think that there would be a problem. But uh, and trying to pry something out of a Gila monster's mouth is a little difficult. But I also learned that they are immune to kilo monster venom apparently because he had no problems after i got him out of there but um that would be the only thing i'd be worried about but Mm -hmm. i think i can get around that if i raise them up together and just kind of curl them up around the same time so maybe like i said once once i get rid of some of these monitors we'll uh we'll consider kilo monsters and stuff like that okay cool uh, yeah, yeah I, I was saying before the show started that was always one of my dad's uh, dream species. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was one that he never had and always wanted. He would always talk about them. I mean, it was like it's probably me with pythons. Like, shut the hell up, man. <laughs> <laughs> was it just was it just beaded or was it healers and beaded? Uh, healers was his main thing, but anything that was, you know, in that vein. Um, yeah, he just wanted, you know, he had a thing for venomous stuff. I don't know why, I guess. <laughs> I don't know, man. Yeah. yeah. Death wish. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. no, nah, man, it, it, they're so cool and they're really not that hard. Like, I know we were talking about venomous and we're talking about like, uh, 
eyelash vipers and venomous snakes and stuff like that, I feel like beaded and healers and the venomous lizards can easily be uh, worked with and kind of maintained. I mean, the heavy welder's glove, you can kind of get around a lot of stuff that they could be dangerous. Sure. So, um, yeah, I think they would be the one venomous thing I would want to kind of try to play around with. So, hmm. yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we'll see how you do with it. And then, uh, <laughs> well, if I die, just, you know, don't do it. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'll get my dad some and live through him. Um, there you go. <laughs> speaking of which, here we are. Halloween. Yes. Is this uh start of your breeding season? As, are yes, officially... it is. Um, okay. Official, officially, I will lay everything down tomorrow. So I will start uh, the alter, altering the uh, temps and everybody who is going into the cold room will make the move tomorrow, which is why I was like texting you that, hey, Eric, I'm going to drop off that bread lot because I'm like, get it the hell out of here because it's not going to cold room. So, you know, that's, <laughs> <laughs> there's that. So it's like there's uh, a few things I got to plan out. And the, with the Collier Bridge, um, I don't want to put the king snakes together immediately. I kind of want them to start going down a little bit so uh-huh. that they don't try to kill each other. Um, uh-huh. So, but like things like the corn, yeah, things like the corn snake, I'm going to put the boy in with his allotted females, like right off the, like they're all just going to go together. So uh, we'll just do that. And then of course the bread lie and uh, um, my diamond are all going to go down as well and see how many slots I have open. So, yeah, cool. everybody's going in and uh, see how this goes. It's yeah, I don't breeding season. Yeah, I, I, I don't officially start dropping temps per se until the end of November. So I right. use the beginning of November to stop the feeding, let them empty out. It gets a little colder, but um, just a gradual till I guess the beginning of December. I'll be looking at you know. 70 degree uh nights in there so yeah so cool yeah, yeah i'm excited man drop. i'm jumping at the bit you're, it feels like forever you're back <laughs> i don't know if it. i can it's do like, it <laughs> uh, everything's brand new again it's like yeah it's all that stuff I, and it's funny because i know we talked last week i'm like oh i kind of i got all my breeding things set up and then i altered the collection and i'm like crap i gotta redo it and then I totally forgot that, you know, I'm going over to your place to grab that one uh, coastal. And I'm like, crap, I have to add that now. <laughs> it's like, you know, so basically every time I think I'm done, something happens and I have to go back and redo everything or add to it. So it's basically I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> so that's <laughs> where we're at. But um, the good thing is, is that by moving a bunch of animals over into the cold room, it opens uh-huh. up a bunch of my cages and I can get certain animals out of racks and bins and uh, get some pairs ready to go. Like uh, I have my water python is in a 41 quart, my adult, my uh, female. So I'm pull uh-huh. her out and put her in a three foot cage and this way get her kind of acclimated and chilled out before I introduce the boy. So uh, we might get water pythons or he might just kind of she, she just might totally kick his ass. I don't know yet. She's a hard <laughs> evil creature. So, you know, cool. it's uh We'll see how it goes, but I'm excited for the season, dude. I'm 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 hopeful for a bunch of babies, a bunch of different stuff yeah. too. Yeah, I'm uh I'm I'm a little nervous about this season because if you know taking last season off, I know it's like you know getting on a bike, I guess you know, but it's just yeah, I don't know. <laughs> well, it's 
it's been it is but basically it two years since I've I've even yeah pondered uh, breeding, you know. So well, I mean, it, it is like a bike and it isn't because yeah, it's the same thing. But you're also in a brand new house, so yeah. you know, I know you've pretty much spent the year trying to figure out how your house acts, but you know, practice versus you know, uh, you know, putting it into. It, uh, the, trying it out is a little bit different, so you got to see how that goes. But yeah. you know, it, I, I can definitely see the excitement. I can definitely see the terror. I always get freaked out before the beginning of any breeding season. And this year, I'm doing so many different things, not uh-huh. just with like you know the Max and the Olives and the White Lips, but I'm also doing different pairings of carpet python that I've kind of never tried with. And I had last year was my first clutch of jungles. Ever. Mm-hmm. And now I have two, four, five pairings of jungle, five jungle pairings going this year. So, oh, wow. Yeah. And like one of them is super, one of them is zebra to zebra. So it's like, there's a lot of shit going on over here. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, crap. It was like, I, I sit here and I figured out I have uh, 38 pairings of animals going. Whoa. Yeah, I thought I had a lot. Holy shit! Yeah, yeah. So nice, crazy, craziness. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. Oh, cool. Uh, and the last thing I wanted to just shout out, if you haven't caught this yet, um, everybody knows that the Hypo Coastal um, Paul uh, announced what, like a couple months ago, uh, yeah. that he was going to make some available. Blah blah blah. This is a true hypo coastal, and he posted up some hypo tigers. <laughs> Holy shit! <laughs> See them? It's so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> it's like everything I ever wanted, and it's just like, oh my god! <laughs> so, yeah. and 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 that, oh my, and that's what I always wanted. I I always ex- expected a super caramel tiger to look like that. So to have mm-hmm. that in a few generations of the hypo, just by doing like. Bailing tigers, the hypos, they were gorgeous. And I can't yeah. wait to see what they would come out with. I can't wait to see them get here. I can't wait for you to produce me a pair and for you to tell me to come get them. So get to work. <laughs> chop, chop. I will, yeah. I, yeah, now, because I want them. So, uh, and I can't wait to see what kind of further down the road because I would love to see those patterns with exanic coloration so like that silvery kind of stuff going on with that silver and blue so when on that case i would love to see a gorgeous silver blue kind of exanic tiger mixed with one of those hypo tigers i mean they they are perfect it's exactly the right building block that i've always wanted for that kind of stuff so uh i can't wait to see what would come from that yeah, it's a cool project for sure. So yeah. if you didn't get a chance to check it out, go see uh, UK Python's Facebook page and uh, you can see what we're talking about. But uh, cool stuff for sure. Um, mm-hmm. All right, let's let's uh, let's get Justin on here and let's get this going and uh, let's talk some uh, green trees. Your favorite. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't add that before the interview. God damn it. <laughs> Hey Justin, <laughs> welcome back. Hey guys, to... how's it going? Pretty good. Going How right. are you? <laughs> uh, doing well. I'm kind of kicking myself. I, <laughs> for some reason, I didn't realize October 31st was Halloween, and so 
<laughs> the kids are out trick-or-treating and dad's sitting in his room alone trying to keep the lights off so people don't knock on the door and make the dogs bark while I talk to you guys until <laughs> so they can come back. <laughs> I'm an idiot. I did get to go to a little neighborhood uh, Halloween party that's going on over at our, our church. And um, this, this little kid in our neighborhood, he loves reptiles and he, you know, his dad brings him over every once in a while to come check out the snakes or hold a snake or two or whatever. And, and so, you know, he had a shirt with some lizards on it and I said, Oh, you know what, are you a herpetologist for Halloween? He said, no, I'm Justin Jewlander. <laughs> I mean, oh, you, oh, you've officially uh, made it, man. My heart. Yeah, oh, man. It's going to be a Halloween costume, damn. Oh, yeah, so that was that That just made my day right there. It was it was fantastic. So, yeah. That's awesome. Good Pretty awesome. It's always good when you can inspire the younger generations, you know? <laughs> Hell, Yeah. Uh, yeah, I by don't the see way, it. I, I, the, those the the last you know few guests you guys have had on have been fantastic. I, I really enjoyed uh, listening to Forrest and uh, Brian. I mean, those guys are just like enthusiastic and good spirited. It's just great to hear that. You know, good stuff. Got a yeah. got a good generation coming up in the reptile hobby. So, good stuff. Yeah, I got a yeah. lot of uh, a lot of good feedback about those guys, and you know, meeting those guys in person at Tinley and whatnot, I knew that uh, they're exactly the type of guest we love. That positive, you know, super enthusiastic, uh, optimistic, you know, <laughs> just yep. excited about yeah. being in uh, in the reptile hobby, you know. So. Oh yeah, yeah. I had to call up Forrest and chat chat with him for a while after after that interview you guys did with him. He's a, he's just a just a cool guy. It was fun to fun to chat with, catch up with him a little bit. I'd met him a while back, and uh, mm-hmm. um, I think it was at Tinley that that year we did the carpet uh, symposium thing. So that was fun to talk to him, catch up with him a little bit. But just a cool guy. Awesome. Very cool. So, Justin, about the book, um, it seems like <laughs> something that we wouldn't have seen from you before i mean i know we know you did the carp we helped with the carpet book you did the uh children's uh book so what what why green tree pythons because i don't know uh, you never <laughs> yeah we never talked about you having a massive green tree python collection so <laughs> that that was my fear exactly you know like who's this guy right in the green tree he, he has one pair oh that's impressive you know like yeah i don't know i think that was kind of <laughs> That was kind of it was I, I got into green trees after talking with uh, Terry Phillip and Ryan Young on the phone, you know, kind of asking about it. And after I'd kind of seen Terry set up and talked to him about them and, and just thought, you know, these aren't as, you know, cause you always thought they were so hard, so difficult, so specialized, you know? And so I, one time uh, Ben, Ben Morrill and I, we, we bought one, you know, when we were back, when we were partners and, and uh, Ben was keeping it at his house. It was a juvenile captive bred, you know, and he was keeping it at 90 degrees and spraying it, you know, daily and just hosing that thing off every day. And, and like, you know, it didn't last very long. And so we're thinking, mm-hmm. oh, you know, there you go. They're, they're specialized. They're too hard for us to keep. So we kind of forgot about them. And, and then when I went over to, you know, Terry's place and saw his setup and, you know, just talked to him and just talking about reptiles in general. And, you know, just the guy's just, a wealth of knowledge. And so 
you know, I, I uh, chatting with him and just, th- and he's saying, you know, they're the easiest snakes in the world. It's, you know, it's almost impossible to kill these things. I'm thinking, well, that's not my experience. You know, these things are, <laughs> these things are difficult. You know? <laughs> ben had one. It didn't do so. Uh, it didn't work out, you know? So, um, you know, and, and really they, they are pretty dang easy to keep. You just have to understand their natural history. So that got me thinking and, got me on a kick to to learn all I could about green tree pythons so I started reading all the literature and kind of learning about them and and their natural history really kind of matched what Terry was saying you know they don't eat a lot they live kind of in a cooler area you know in the in the rainforest everybody thinks rainforest is hot and muggy and just unbearable heat you know but really you know I when I went up to the iron range um and and got you know we're in their habitat you know we saw a couple of them hanging out on the trees you know and and they were just um inside these forests underneath the canopy you know it pretty much blocks out all the sun so it's nice and cool in there you know pretty much like 75 degrees and uh you know so i got to looking at um different areas where these things live and you know everywhere you everywhere they are you know i looked at the the average temperatures across the across the spectrum and and like the nighttime temperatures were what around 75 degrees you know they kind of average 70 70 degrees and that's when they're active you know at night so those average lows and and uh and the average highs are you know average highs are only like 80 degrees and so you know they're not living in these sweltering sweaty forests they're living in a kind of a temperate uh temperature and so you know, I'm thinking, well, Utah's pretty cold. <laughs> it's pretty temperate, you know, there's not yeah. it gets a little hot in the summer and really dang cold in the winter. But other than that, you know, in my reptile room I can keep them seventy year round or you know, sixty five to, to eighty. And uh so I, I picked up some juveniles from Terry and kinda kept them along those lines and, and you know, researched them as much as I could and so and you know, they did great. And so I'm thinking and this this knowledge needs to be out there, and so, um, you know, that kind of led me down that path, right? <laughs> um, yeah. I was always hoping that Rico would write the book, and we we were kind of um, joking with him about that, but uh, I guess we can talk about Rico a little later. But you know, that's uh, I'd, I'd hope that he he would write it because he he was kind of on the same uh, journey that I was, you know, when we were seeing him in the wild and. And after that, kind of thinking about, you know, how, how are we, how are we doing things wrong with these guys? You know, because it seemed to be the norm that a green tree python just lived, you know, four or five years, maybe had one or two clutches and then died. And that just yeah. became the normal. And, uh, you know, I really enjoyed your interview with Harlan Wall. Um, same thing, you know, he's just enthusiastic, really knowledgeable, just a great guy, um, always positive. And uh, I, I really, really enjoyed that one that you guys did with him. I did the same thing after that. After, after I listened to it, um, I gave him a call. And we we sat up talking. I think it was like 2 o'clock by the time I hung up the phone, 2 in the morning, you know. <laughs> We're, we, talk, we talked from about 10 to about 2 in the morning. And I had to, like, <laughs> go walk around the neighborhood so I wouldn't wake <laughs> my family up, you know, in the middle of the night talking about snakes and just, you know, excited to talk and discuss these things. And um, so, you know, there's a lot of things I think uh, in the past – have been kind of a little off, but you know, that was the, the idea behind the book. Somebody needs to write a book that compiles the literature and kind of 
promotes a little bit of a paradigm shift, you know, a shift in the common thinking of, you know, these things are difficult. They need this. They need to be sprayed every day. They need to have, you know, hot temperatures. You need to get them up to a thousand grams before you can start thinking about breeding them. You know, all these misconceptions that just don't line up with their natural history. Um, we want, you know, I kind of wanted to dispel those beliefs. And so um, I just started putting together these things I was reading and thinking about and experiencing with the, with the animals I got from Terry and, uh, you know, conversations with Terry and Ryan and a few others on, on the subject, you know, that kind of guided me even further. And, and Ryan, you know, he, he's a great wealth of knowledge too. And, um, it was, uh, good to, good to hear him on the show as well. Here's some interviews. I guess he was, he did one of the GTP keeper. He, he was one of the hosts for that the other week. So it's good to hear him, uh, more in the public setting, I guess he's, he's a little bit reclusive, you know, he, it's hard to like pull <laughs> mm-hmm. teeth to get him out to do your show or something right here. But, um, you know, but he's a wealth of knowledge. So, you know, he kind of was the same attitude, you know, we're keeping them wrong. Um, we're, you know, they're really not what they, and he, he read the, the papers, you know, the Wilson papers and, and came to some of those same conclusions, you know, they don't eat a lot and, you know, wait till they start moving around the cage to try to feed them. So, you know, all these conversations, all this reading uh, shaped this and kind of said, I, I just need to put it down on, a, on paper, get it in a book and get it out there so people can, you know, understand from a natural history perspective. And really with the, the children's python and the carpet python books, um, that was my major contribution to those books was the natural history. Um, being right. you know, a Research professor, I've got access to the libraries, and if, if our library doesn't have it, they'll order it for me, and so I can get papers from any journal I, 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 need, I can, you know, and so I was able to, you know, if I found some obscure reference in German or something, I could order it through my library, and I'd get it here. <laughs> One time, was, it was kind of funny. I got a little bit of trouble, but there was a, I, I applied for an interlibrary loan from a university in, in um, Australia, uh, to mm-hmm. get somebody's um, doctoral dissertation. This was back when we were writing the Carpet Python book, and I think it was uh, Ben, uh, what's his last name? Um, ben Corey, the Ben Corey thesis, you know, the, that that one, that kind of that mythical uh, thesis that everybody referenced but nobody had. Okay. <laughs> I, uh-huh. I, I got it in my little hands. I had I had the original <laughs> copy from his library, right? In Australia, they send it over, and my library's like, "How did you get this? What? Why are they sending this here?" I'm like, "I just applied through your interlibrary loan system." They're like, "Don't do that again." Well, okay, sorry. All right, fine. <laughs> what was I supposed to do? Tell me how I did do it right. <laughs> so, so I got to got to read that and you know reference it properly and things. So that was kind of cool. I was pretty excited about that. So that's I guess that's one of the perks of being up you know at the university. So. Um, that's, that really facilitated that and allowed me to write it. Now that's kind of the, I would say maybe the, the my favorite part of, of writing it and, and hopefully, you know, people get that in reading it, that I really was excited about the natural history. And that's kind of the main thing I focused on, you know, some other areas are kind of weak. I'm, I'm a little weak on the, uh, 
maybe on the taxonomy, I didn't do the best job in, you know, delineating the two species or, or uh, some people felt maybe I should have talked about those a little more. And, you know, maybe a, a second edition down the road, I can include more information there. Also, like uh, the locality stuff and talking about the different regions. I don't have a lot of knowledge in that area. And I was hoping to, you know, get, get a little more on that from maybe a co-author. And that was, you know, one of the one of the reasons I looked into getting a co-author on this one. But, yeah, that was the major focus was was uh, talking about their natural history. So what did lead, the link, lead to the link up with uh, Terry? Well, it was, I mean, it was an obvious, obvious choice uh, from my perspective. The, the hardest thing was is Terry is a busy guy. Right? Yeah. So, you know, I – there's a lot I, uh, of crap for him to do over there. Yeah, so. exactly. He's he's just you know definitely in demand. But I knew that if I could get somebody that was legit, you know, in the in the contro area, you know, <laughs> that would uh, definitely lead lend a little credence. And I think that has definitely borne true. And you know, Terry's contribution was was very helpful. I mean, from just from the basic, um, you know, helping me understand green tree pythons and helping me kind of get into green tree pythons and understand what they really needed. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, he was basically the inspiration for the book, you know, I'd say it that way. And so I, I thought, you know, who better to have, have as a, a co-author on this. And I, when I initially asked him, he said, no, I'm too busy. I, <laughs> I can't do that. Yeah, I, I just can't, I can't, you know, I don't have the time to, to, to do you justice and, you know, make you happy and, and, you know, keep, keep going on it. And, you know, so that's, and, you know, I, I, uh, it, it was a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a struggle that way. Cause you know, when you have a cause like writing the books with Nick, Nick would almost mm-hmm. like crack the whip. How much have you written this week? What have you, where are you at? You know, it, was, it was really helpful. <laughs> really? Yeah, exactly. So it was like daily calls. How much did you write today? Like, okay. All right. So yeah, daily calls that last an hour. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I appreciated that, you know, it made it, made, it gave me a little more motivation to, to write a little more, uh, you know, frequently and <laughs> a little more. Um, so, and it was a good, you know, it was a good, good experience there and working with Nick in that regard. Um, he was really good to write with that way. And, um, so, you know, I, I, I didn't, I, I'm, I'm not that type personality type. So I, I didn't think I could do that to Terry. So I kind of said, okay, you know, I'll, I'll keep writing. I'll come back to you. Maybe, you know, if you have some time, let me know. We'll, we'll try this. And so, you know, I approached a couple other people and, and same kind of thing. They just didn't have the time or energy to do it. They had other, other things. So finally I just kept hounding Terry and finally he said, okay, all right, well, I'll, I'll do what I can. And I said, you know, whatever, (laughs) whatever you can do, I'll take it, you know, whatever you got. So, and, uh, I, you know, I still think that's probably, got to be one of your most popular shows is that interview with Terry Phillip and, you know, just all the, the good stuff. Oh yeah. He's just, yeah, he's just it's a, one of the ones up there. Just, I mean, just a wealth of knowledge. That guy is just one of the, and one of the nicest guys I know, just, mm-hmm. I, you know, I consider him a real true friend. So, um, I was really happy that he finally said yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, you know, because honestly, you know, I, I only have a, a peregrine tree python. So, you know, I, I had a, I had a few more. I sold a couple off and and just ended on. I th- I said I'm just going to go go with a pair for now, and you know I can give them a little bit bigger cage and you know give them a little more room to hopefully 
show some naturalistic behaviors and and you know it's been it's it's been a really fun fun journey with those and the hardest thing is to not feed him every time oh he, he looks like he wants to eat i need to he's hungry him, yeah man, no. <laughs> yeah that look <laughs> they give me, you know like yep sorry buddy sorry keep keep, keep begging but mm-hmm. um, let me see you move around give me 20 you know get 20 laps around the cage i'll think about giving you a little <laughs> cheeky or something yeah so, uh so yeah that's how terry came on board and i was i was really fortunate to be able to to um, have him be a co-author on the book and just a super guy. So that's cool. The, that's the backstory. <laughs> so you went a different route this time. Is this something that is just kind of like, what, how long did this process take? Have you been working on this for a while and, or is this something that yeah. just kind of, <laughs> um, like I said, it's a lot easier when somebody's cracking the whip. How much did you write mm-hmm. today? So, <laughs> and you know, I, oh, I okay. It was it was it was a little hard to to um, to break the news to Nick that I was writing a book and I hadn't asked him to be an author on it. So I felt no. Bad, no. Bad about that. Oh no! That was a, that was a Would that be like me doing he, a podcast, another podcast, and breaking the news? You would never speak yeah. again. I was worried he'd be as vindictive as Owen, but you know, yeah. he was a pretty. He was. He was very magnanimous, very, you know, he was a nice guy about it. So, um, you know, that, that's, uh, uh, he understood, you know, kind of the, the direction I was going with Terry and things. So that wasn't, you know, it didn't cause too much beef or heartache. So that was good. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I did enjoy writing with Nick, but so this was a little bit longer, um, process and, you know, uh, I guess, you know, it, it's, uh, the thing that, that, I guess delayed the most probably was, was, uh, um, trying to get the, uh, information, you know, get more, well, what am I, what am I thinking here? Like it it just, you know, I, I, I tried to write the book mainly on the bus on the way into work. So Mm -hmm. the, the bus system up here is free. So you just jump on the bus and ride to ride into work. And, um, it goes right, you know, around the corner from my house, right to the door of my office. And so it's pretty convenient. And then I can sit and write while I ride. So I would try to write as much as I could in the 15, 20 minute commute that I have and, and then write on the way home. So, yeah, I get a good 40 minutes of writing every day and it was going pretty well. And I had, you know, I had the majority of the book and, and was ready, but got stalled on a few different subjects. And, and, you know, as I said, Terry's pretty busy. So that, that, uh, delayed things a little bit as well. And just the fact that I had to wait a little while to get him to, to convince him to be on board. So, you know, it was a couple of years in the writing and, and that's all right. Um, mm-hmm. I, I hope it's, uh, hope it was worth the, the time. And then, uh, I, I thought, okay, I'm ready. I'm, I'm going to just get it out the door, get it out of my hair, finalize this book. And so I'd asked, uh, Dave Barker if he'd consider writing the foreword and, uh-huh. uh, I was, you know, he, <laughs> He, he was he was very gracious and said I'd love to do that you know I was like wow you know this is awesome this is cool because I mean he's that guy is the the pioneer the you know the end all be all of python breeders so um Heck that yeah. was a huge uh, just a huge you know uh boost to my excitement of getting this thing out and then so I sent him you know a, a good chunk of the book to to look over and see what he thought and He's like, you know, I, I, I like what you got in the book, but, uh, you know, you need to clean this up a little bit. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, that's a blow of the ego, you know, like the, yeah. the, uh, some, 
he he mentioned a few passages that had grammatical errors and things like that. And I, and I went back and I started looking at him like, Oh my gosh, how embarrassing is that? You know, I, I, I noticed them right off, you know, there's, there's a ton of mistakes in here. So I'm like, okay, I guess I'll do it the right way. Take a little more time. And so I hired a, an editor on campus. Mm-hmm. There was these kind of freelance editors. And so I'd send them chunks of the book and pay them a hundred bucks. And so I kind of took my time there because I didn't want to be hemorrhaging money because mm-hmm. I think it's like 50 bucks an hour is their rate. So, and I was thinking, okay, you know, maybe they can, I know they can get through. And I was thinking, I, and that was a kind of a cheap rate. I was finding the cheapest yeah. rate I could, you know, like, found, yeah, I think I got them, you know, got them down to like 25 bucks an hour or something. So, you know, every two hours and I'm like, man, shouldn't they be reading a little faster? What, you know, <laughs> <they're> <laughs> oh, 10 yeah. pages. I'm like, oh crap, that's 20 <laughs> and 50. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm going to be uh, losing a lot of money on this. <laughs> like, so, you know, it was a little bit of a, little bit of a painful process there but i think in the end it, it worked out all right and mainly i have them edit the the natural history sections and you know so don't look too closely at their other sections you know after i kind of got a feel for the things that were being changed to help me find the the stuff that needed to be changed later on and you know i when you're writing on the bus, I guess you're not as focused as you you should be when you're writing a book. So that was a little bit of a painful process. So it was nice to, you know, with Nick, he would, he would go through and we'd kind of go back and forth and find all the different errors and, or, or things that could be changed in the, in the writing that we did. And so that was, that was a little painful for us both in some ways, but you know, you find something and, you know, you've got this chapter you're really proud of and you give it to somebody it comes back bleeding, you know, with all this red ink. And you're like, oh, <laughs> okay. Like, what? Well, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I guess I had a little, little experience writing technically because of, you know, my job, I'm, I'm writing um, papers for publication and journals and things. And I remember the first time I sent in my, you know, first paper that I was trying to get published and, my major professor sent it back with just, just hashed, ripped to shreds. Like, try again. I'm like, oh, crap. oh yeah, so right. it's, a, it's a painful, painful process learning how to write. And so, you know, I, I think that's another maybe thing I can bring to the table. And, and I think I got a little sloppy trying to get the information out there too quickly. So it was, uh, you know, a little humbling to have Dave say, Go back, try again, get somebody to edit it, you know, get a professional editor. He's like, you know, you're you're a good writer, but you need you need to make sure this is um edited well and, and is in a really good form before you send it out to publication. And I really appreciated that. And then he you know, he went the extra mile and he's given me like, Okay, here's how you set up a book, you need a blank page, then you need this page. he's using like mm-hmm. the recto, you know, the the proper terms for the right side and the left side of the page. And I'm like, wow, this guy's a professional, you know, and obviously <laughs> he's written a few books and he has his own publishing company. So I would expect him to uh, know a little bit more about these things than I do. So that was really helpful. So, yeah, it was That's great awesome. to have uh, Dave uh, help along the way, but yeah, a little bit, a little bit longer than I'd hoped, uh, a little bit, you know, more time, time consuming than I'd hoped, but um Hopefully the the finished product project or you know uh, product is was uh, worthwhile to to everybody and um, that's where we're at. <laughs> awesome. So what's cool. the one thing that you took away the the main thing that you were totally surprised about 
doing this book as far as, you know, content uh, about green trees? Mm-hmm. Um, the this, this most surprising thing, I think, well, one of the things that really sticks out in my head, and there's, you know, probably a few things that really – um, or a little surprising. You know, it's hard to say, too, because you, you have to kind of put yourself back in the moment when you learn these things. And some sometimes we, we get a big head and think, oh, I, I knew that all along, you know. <laughs> but, and so, but there's a few things that I remember being a little shocked about. And, and you know, we're learning a lot of times it's such a gradual process. Sometimes it's hard to things from our subconscious. But um, one of the coolest things I remember reading was when I was reading uh, – Wilson, one of Wilson's papers, and um, he had uh, set up cameras to observe green tree pythons or try to capture green tree pythons feeding in the wild. So he's in the Iron Range. He sets up these traps, and you know the green tree pythons are fairly um, predictable. You know they'll kind of come down the tree every evening. Right as soon as the sun is setting, they're headed down, and they'll set up shop at the base of a tree, you know, waiting for something to come beneath them. And I, I thought that was a cool, you know, thing to, yeah. to learn. But um, he he was recording, and he, you know, he captured a few feeding events. But the most shocking was he recorded a green tree python capturing a moth. Um, and you know, I I'm like, wait a second, did I read that right? Are, are, are we talking like a, a, a ne- Are we talking like a neonate? Or is this like the no, biggest moth is, I, we've ever seen uh, on like film? So I, I'm not sure the species of the moth. I can't. I just remember it was a moth, and I'm pretty sure it was a it was a green individual. So uh, okay, an adult. So well, that's um, freaky. And, um, you know, you know, they're fairly small snakes, and moths right. get pretty big in the rainforest. But um, it it grabbed a moth, and you know, I guess they you know they move move around a lot, so you can see. Okay, that might elicit a feeding response. Is, is that like even? Is that even like high on a nutritional value? Like, was that even? Do you think like he just bit it by accident and went like, well, whatever, it's in my mouth and just swallowed, or was he like intentionally looking for moth? That's a great question. I, All right. <laughs> uh, Doctor Wilson did not interview the snake, so he, damn it, you know, I think it was gone by the morning. <laughs> yeah. Hard to know for sure, but I think you know. I, I well, I, I referenced a paper in the book about uh, bears, um, the grizzly bear, and, and this was a, another shocking thing I learned. You know, I remember learning this and going, "Whoa, that is crazy, ridiculous information." I love that, you know. Um, yeah. For example, like I was. I was walking through the National Zoo a couple of weeks ago, and I was passing the sloth bear exhibit, and they were going to do a feeding. And I was, I was, you know, I was supposed to get out of town so I could catch my plane. And I thought, well, you know, I'll sit around and watch this sloth bear feeding thing for 15 right. minutes. And this girl's got a tube coming out of the sloth bear cage, and it's like hooked to this fake termite mound. And she's got these mealworms, and she's holding the mealworms in front of the tube, and all of a sudden they go whoop, and like get sucked up the tube. And I'm like, do they have some kind of vacuum system to? to deliver these mealworms into this, you know, fake termite mound to uh, feed the bears. And apparently the sloth bears, and this was just cool information, they stick their lips on, they'll dig a little hole in the termite mound, stick their lips around and kind of form the seal and start inhaling and suck up the termites. And so it was the bear sucking these mealworms through a tube, like, you know, three feet of tube. 
into right. the into the termite mat. I'm like, holy crap! So that was you know something I didn't know. You know, I guess I get a little prideful thinking I know things about animals, but so I, I'm always excited when I get to learn something new and cool. And uh, sloth bears sucking up you know insects was really cool. But anyway, the back to my point that the grizzly bears they'll go up on these hillsides where these uh, I think it's cutworm moths or something like that. They 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 have a breeding area on these talus slopes and it's like all these rock, you know, rocky hillside and they're rolling rocks and they're eating moths. And apparently the moths that they eat, get them through their hibernation period. It gives them enough fat storage to get through their hibernation period. Hmm. I'm like, that's gotta be a crap ton of moths to get <laughs> yeah. a giant bear through. Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, a lot of bear. Yeah. And and there's a ton of moss up there, so they're eating a crap ton of moss and and getting the fat stores they need for hibernation. So pretty uh, pretty cool stuff. So apparently there's good uh, energy reserves in moss. They're they're basically you know flying pads of butter or something. So mm. um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know the the uh, the food supplies, especially mammals, I think is are in fairly short supply in the rainforest, either in short supply or very difficult to, to get. Uh, I don't know if you guys, I, I remember on my honeymoon, um, mm-hmm. we went to, to Mexico to uh, Puerto Vallarta and there's this place. It's, it's a rainforest and that's where they filmed uh, predator, right? The nice. old 80s movie. <laughs> and so I'm thinking, okay, we got to go to this rainforest, you know, this is where predator. So we rented a Jeep. We're feeling really cool, you know, driving around this Jeep around Puerto Vallarta. And we go up to this rainforest and, and I'm like, I got to go look for snakes. And, and my wife, uh, when we first met, she was fairly afraid of snakes. And so we set <laughs> off into the rainforest, right? And, and, and she, and I'm like, all right, let's go. And I start trudging away and I look back and she's about 20 feet behind me. And I'm like, are you coming? And she would, take a step and look like all around her and then take another step and look everywhere <laughs> she didn't want a chance stepping near a snake you know so I'm like oh, okay would you feel better staying here while I go look in the rainforest <laughs> she's like oh yeah that's fine and so I so I took off and I'm thinking okay I'm going into this is my first venture into the rainforest I'm going to find all these reptiles amphibians you know they're going to be everywhere because this is the rainforest and there's so much biodiversity in the rainforest so I'm trudging through, just getting ripped up by vines and, you know, tripping over the roots and stuff. And, and I'm not seeing crap. Like, there's nothing I'm seeing. I, I saw maybe two birds, you know, and that was it. And I'm thinking, man, this is a scam. There's nothing in the rainforest. They've lied to me, you know. But, uh, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of places in the rainforest to hide. I was used to the desert where, you know, you can see a lizard sitting on a rock 100 feet away, you know, and, and <laughs> the sneak only up rock, on it yeah. and try to catch it or something. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm used to that kind of stuff. So when you've got a tree, you know, every two feet and it's really um, thick undergrowth and stuff like that, I mean, there's so many places for these animals to hide. Um, it's really difficult to find um, stuff. So, you know, it could be a matter of, there's just there there might be a lot of food but maybe it it doesn't need to go far to find its food so it's so they have to wait a long time between meals or just that they're you know seasonally uh abundant 
So you might find them during certain parts of the year, and then during the rest of the year, it's kind of lean pickings, or they or they grow too big and or grow smarter, so they're not dumb enough to walk in front of a tree where a green tree python is waiting for them to grab them. So I imagine they probably have a pretty highly seasonal feeding pattern where they eat a lot at certain times of the year, and then the rest of the year probably don't eat anything. And, you know, that's what pythons are adapted to do. Pythons are yeah. sitting weight predators. They can go a long time without food, and they can go a long time in the same place. And and so in captivity, you know, that's not necessarily very exciting for, for us keepers, but, uh, you know, that's what they do. So, it you know, it may just be that there's not a lot of food, and so they'll strike at anything that comes past their face. And, you know, anybody that keeps them, you know, you go into the reptile room, and they're sitting there in ambush position ready to, mm-hmm. you know, grab something so you think oh he's hungry you know that's that's what you do when a python's in an ambush position you give him some food you know but right um, actually that's i i think that's just because it's hard to come by a deal in the rainforest and so at least you know where these green tree pythons are are or where the majority of the studies have been which is in the iron range so it could be a little different for green tree pythons in other parts of new guinea or you know other parts of the range but uh, a lot of the research that's been done has been done in uh, the Iron Range population in Australia. So we might have a little bit of a biased um, view from that regard. So hopefully more research will come out on green trees and other parts of their range. And really, it's, I mean, it's kind of sketchy to, to travel around New Guinea in, in a lot of ways. And I've heard some pretty scary stories from some of the guys that have uh, been in that area and, you know, had a headhunters screaming at them and shaking spears towards them and stuff. You know, you're like, yeah, that's, that's a little sketchy. Yeah. But, uh, no, 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 no thank you. Yeah. Or, or getting robbed in the city or, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. So, you know, it can be a scary place. So I understand why, uh, you know, you'd, and who wouldn't want to spend their time in Australia over New Guinea anyway, but that's my, <laughs> uh, for some reason, you know, you go, you go north of Cape York and you hit ocean and that's where my interest ends for a lot of the, a lot of things. <laughs> I re- I really just love Australian stuff. And, um, I don't know, New Guinea wasn't all that appealing to me, but I think, you know, writing this book has got me a little more excited about New Guinea and there's some really cool things going on up there. So that is um, awesome. Yeah. Cool. So Eric, can I, can I try yeah. to feed your green tree pythons moths? Because I don't have any, so um, and I want to try it. <laughs> I, sure. I actually, I actually threw a few moths in my green trees enclosure. But did they eat them? I think <laughs> I, I, I no, they did not. Damn it! Off, but I, I think it probably partially was that you know they're they're even in my collection where I try to feed them sparingly, they're probably very overfed and. Right. And uh, compared to their wild counterparts, I mean, the couple that we found, one was, you know, on death's door, like it was very thin and kind of emaciated. It looked like it needed a meal really quick. And luckily the wet season was coming soon. Um, the other ind- individual we saw was just beautiful, really just strong and uh, muscular tone. And But it was very thin. It was, you know, really you'd look at it and go, sure, that's a green tree python. It looks more like a Stimson python or something. They're just these scrawny little uh, tree worms. So, um, you know, that could be it. You know, if if they're desperate for food, they might take a moth. Um, If they're not and they know that a mouse is around the 
next uh, couple of weeks or something is going to be offered to them. They might just hold out for that. So it's hard to say. Right. Right. But it would be cool fun to, you know, let them go without food for a while and then throw throw a big moth right. in there and see if they go after it. <laughs> I like it. Eric, starve one of yours. Just, like, don't feed it forever, and we'll get moths, and we'll try it. So and we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. We did yeah. – uh, we uh, – I know this is jumping a little bit out of uh, order and whatnot, but we did get uh, a question in from uh, Francis Pringle, Francis. a.k.a. the other buddy. Other buddy. That one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> He has uh, he has three questions. Um, so, and obviously we we're going to talk about this at some point. But uh, it says, uh, "How do you feel about the size debate, and what do you think is the ideal weight for a green tree python?" Mm-hmm. I you know I think that's a that's a good question, and that's something that I think Daniel Natouche kind of shocked the masses with when he <laughs> gave a talk to ICAST. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> I wasn't yeah, there, but I remember hearing from Nick and Ben, and everybody's like, "Holy crap! He just dropped a bomb <laughs> on everybody," you know. And uh, yeah, so I think that was really cool information, and that's another thing that's really just been one of those things that I remember learning and just going, "Wow, that's really cool," you know, that they can breed, you know, three to six hundred grams. You know, that's that's a pretty small snake, and so I think a I think a six hundred gram. Um, it's kind of that range of adult size, and uh, we, you know, that's probably what you'd want to shoot for. Now, I think, you know, in all these size debates, I think you've got to factor in age as well, because I think in a lot of times our our captives are abnormally large compared to their, you know, a similarly aged animal in the wild, and so, you know, if you have, uh, you know, a five-year-old that's 600 grams, then that'd probably be just just fine to try to breed that animal. But if you have a, a one-year-old that's 600 grams, you're probably a little early in the game, right? Um, mm-hmm. Even if they're large enough, sometimes those younger animals won't breed. But, you know, you never know. Maybe uh, a one-year-old 600-gram animal could breed. I, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's probably less likely than a than a five-year-old 600-gram animal, you know. And and a lot of times we're we're in that race to – to get them to their breeding size or their breeding weight, you know, we got to get them there as quickly as possible so we can get eggs as soon as possible. Right. That's the kind of the name of the game Mm -hmm. with a lot of, a lot of things. And, and unfortunately, you know, I really think that that's maybe not the best way to think about these things. And I, I don't know if it's just being in the hobby for as long as I have, or, you know, breeding animals for as long as I have, you know, sometimes you think, you know, there's really more to this than breeding animals. And I've kind of, gotten back into just enjoying the animals for what they are so uh-huh. you know, it's, it's hard sometimes you, mm-hmm. you I, i've heard you guys talk about this a little bit you know hit on this topic a, a bit lately about you know you get a new animal and you're really excited because it's something you've never worked with and then a couple of years down the road it's just you know another one of the collection and and other people come over and they're like holy crap that thing is awesome and you're like yep. oh yeah that is awesome <laughs> you know i i remember <laughs> It's hard. Oh, yeah. to, it's hard to keep that feeling, you know, of, of excitement for for the animals we see every day. So, sure. Um, I don't know. That's that's a hard thing to do. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking I want to start keeping just normal weird stuff, you know, that that I that's not going to make me any money. That's just a pet that I can just appreciate for what it is. Um, and I think everybody needs to. I was it uh, Yasser, I think that he put up a Facebook post. It might've been 
Um, it was a while back, but uh, he put up a post saying, you know, I challenge everybody to get a species that has no monetary value and just mm-hmm. keep it and breed it and give give the babies away if you want, you know, maybe sell them for five bucks or something. Or, but, but do something like that just to, you know, especially with these commonly imported species. And so go for that. And so I, I really took that to heart. I thought that was a really cool suggestion. So I, I picked up a frilled lizard, you know, I think they're, they're cool. And they're imported uh, nice. from New Guinea all the time and they're pretty cheap. And so I thought eh, that'd be a fun thing. I've always wanted a frilled dragon. I was kind of holding out for a, uh, you know, a Northern Territory red frilled, but you're never going to see those uh, unless they're a little sketchy, hot, you know. So <laughs> I thought, eh, yeah, New Guinea frilled, that sounds good to me. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, that, that got a little bit off base of the size question, but um, I would say ah. 600 grams <laughs> is probably kind of that adult size that that would be what was considered an adult size. And the other, that other comment from Daniel Latouche, I think it might've been on the either Nick's interview with him, but he mentioned that he's only seen a couple individuals over a thousand grams, three, mm-hmm. you know, like point point 0.3% of all the animals he's seen have been over a thousand grams. So if we're raising our animals to over a thousand grams, that's, that's like would be considered morbidly obese if, if it was a human, you know. We can sure. get up to 1,500 pounds, but is that a good thing? And <laughs> well, we got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so a 600-gram okay. adult, you know, it might seem small because we're used to seeing these 3,000-gram monsters that have been fed rats their whole lives, you know. But um, so – I guess you, you trade that and they have those giant, you know, 30, 48 clutches and where a lot of them are slugs or half of them, you know, hatch out weak or whatever, you know, there's, there's other effects um, or they have a shortened lifespan because they're just overfed or they never move. You know, you just see them in the coil all the time. And to me, you know, that that's getting into ball python territory right there, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> <That rocks laughs> in one position. Yeah. <laughs> No, uh, I, I I love I love ball pythons. They're cool too. But um, you know, a lot of times you get that empty cage syndrome. I'm talking about like beaded and gila monsters, beaded lizards mm. and gila monsters. They're such cool animals, but really in nature, all they do is sit around waiting for rains, which don't come that often in, you know, southern Arizona. So in captivity they can be really boring animals. And I remember um Another kind of fun thing I learned back, you know, I was visiting um, the San Diego Zoo and we got a, a tour behind the scenes kind of thing and, and uh, got to talk with one of the keepers. And he showed us the Gila's, you know, they'd had some baby Gila's hatch out and he had them in these like back systems and, and it was like this tiny cage. I'm like, oh my gosh, is that too small for these guys? You know, I'm thinking, <laughs> you guys don't know what you're doing. You're keeping them in these small enclosures. And they're like, no, that's like their natural history. They like just tight, like small spaces. And he's like, we were keeping them in these giant cages and we were not having any success with them. And it wasn't until we put them in these confined little rack systems that they started behaving naturally and doing well. And so it's like, okay, you know, that makes sense. <laughs> see, see how that works. And uh, I think ball pythons are very similar. You know, you put them in a giant cage and they get nervous and freak out and you put them in kind of a more moderately sized rack rack system and they do great. And I think that's why they're probably the most commonly bred snake in herpetoculture is because they fit in a relatively small sized box in a rack right. system. That's their natural environment. That's why they do so well. You know? <laughs> so, right. 
that's, you know, the natural history definitely plays a role in these things. And when you hear, hear about places like Australia making rules about cage sizes, like you have to have a certain cage size for a given size animal, you know, they're totally ignoring what these animals need and what makes them feel comfortable and what they're, um, for, you know, regarding their natural history. So it depends on a lot of things. So I think green tree pythons were, they evolved to be small. They evolved mm-hmm. to be arboreal. They evolved to only eat, you know, once a month or, or less, you know, they, they, all these things, they, that's what they're, that's, they've adapted to this and that's what they're um, doing. And we take them into captivity. We can't change that. Um, evolutionary history or that um, adaptations that they have, uh, no matter how hard we try, if we overfeed them, they're probably going to have a shorter lifespan. If we keep them too hot, they're probably going to have a short lifespan. If we (laughs) spray them down with water every day, it's probably not that great for them, you know? So um, we, you really need to understand uh, the natural history of an animal um, because you can't make it something it's not by sticking it in a cage. Right. Right. Yeah. So Absolutely. that's that's been the, I think that's been the the best lesson I've learned with uh, green tree pythons and writing this book and keeping them in captivity is, you know, and seeing them in the wild. All these things have kind of culminated into, you can't make it something it's not. So let's focus on the natural history and try to adapt our methods and our keeping strategies to help them achieve what they've evolved to do. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's that's a yeah. That's a good lesson to learn, right? I mean, nature's already done the work. All we need to do is try to replicate as best. Recreate it. Yeah. That that can be tricky too. I mean, because you go into a rainforest and you're like, oh, it's raining all the time. I got to spray, and I I think that's one of my favorite Terry uh, Phillip quotes is when he said. Um, I've got, you know, prairie rattlesnakes. I keep prairie rattlesnakes, but you don't see me shoveling snow into their cage. <laughs> there's snow into the cage. The broom ate them. Yeah. So you've got you've to find out what elements of their natural history are, are critical and key and what's just, you know, they just deal with it. Do they right, deal right. with rain? Do they deal with all this moisture or do they need it? You know, amphibians need it. You know, I kept dart frogs. You got to spray down their cage every day or have a missing system or something, you know, if you don't, they're not going to do so well. So they need it. Um, Green tree pythons, I would say they probably don't need it because I've kept them for years without spraying them down and, and uh, they're just fine. So, um, yeah, I might, I might spray down the cage here or there to maybe simulate some rain or, you know, like cycling, making them think it's, rainy season i think maybe there's something to that i don't know i i'm kind of shooting in the dark until we we uh get more information or more data on these things and i think that's why it's it's useful and helpful to try these things and that was another kind of fun conversation topic i had with harlan was that you know he's he's trying these cool things to try to reverse things that don't seem right that don't seem natural i mean he was talking about um teeth in the in the feces right yeah Mm -hmm. he's looking at their poop and there's teeth in there and it's ripping you know ripping up their insides maybe causing prolapse and things like that and i'm thinking and and uh you know that's a that's a good observation and um we need to be looking at our animals poop i guess a little more you know paying attention to those things and thinking why are they shedding so many teeth is that natural is that not natural i don't remember hearing anything about that in the 
in the uh, publication that I read, but is that something that the authors just ignored because it happens all the time and I start looking at my python's poop and I don't notice, you know, do we notice teeth in our carpet python's poop? <laughs> you know, those mm, kind of things. Right. So, and and yeah. then he started talking about vitamin supplementation and potentially that could reverse it and he's got some preliminary data to kind of suggest that's the case and so we started talking about, you know, experiment design and how to, you know, I my scientific mind kicks, kicks, kicks in and I'm like, well, you got to have a control <laughs> group where you don't supplement them, you know, mm-hmm. so you can compare. He's like, well, hey, I'm, I'm a businessman. I'm trying to sell these things. I'm not going to, if I think something's good for him, I'm going to do it with all of them, not just some of them. I'm like, oh, man, come on. You're killing the, the you got to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. <a> little. <laughs> you do it the right way. Yeah. So. But you know that's that's a that's a fair statement. You know I can definitely see that if you think it's going to be good, why why would you not do that for for the others? But you know we we get this information and it's important to share, and that's one of the best qualities of Harlan Wall is he he shares that information. He shares his uh, his research very liberally. You know he doesn't really hold it back. He'll he'll share it with you pretty readily. So that's nice. That yeah, nice. I still I still get a little bit of a laugh every time I see him post a picture of a condor with a penny in its water bowl. I'm thinking, oh, <laughs> yeah. there, there, yeah. there it is. He's, that's he's right. That, that's cool stuff, you know. So, um, I'm gonna. We got another question in that we came in on the chat from uh, Evan, um, but uh, he's basically asking, do you have any thoughts on rats versus mice when it comes to feeding? Um, that's a good question. I think. So when, when feeding a juvenile, um, well, you know, let's, let's talk about ju- juveniles real quick. You know, they're, they're adapted to eat reptiles. They're adapted to eat snakes mm-hmm. or whatever on the forest edge. And that was another really cool thing, you know, to learn about uh, green tree pythons. They change so much and shift and things, and we can talk about that a little later. But when feeding them in captivity, we're giving them these pinkies. And, you know, pinkies are like pads of butter. They're not necessarily the the best thing for an animal, especially if you're feeding them often. And so it was recommended to me, you know, by Terry and some other keepers to get them on furred rodents as quickly as possible. So you got the roughage and the hair and the bone and stuff like that. And so I'm thinking, okay, you know, if you get them, get, get a, uh, an older mouse with more hair and more bone structure and things. Um, if you compare that with a, a similarly sized rat, it's going to be, a, again, a juvenile um, with a lot of body fat. Um, it's still got its baby fat. You know, it may still be nursing or things. So, you know, if you give it a mouse, you're going to have a lot um, more of a bony roughage meal compared to, a, you know, a, a younger animal with a lot of fat and, and maybe healthier in the long run for, for the animal. I, I don't know. That's just kind of the, the thought, you know, the thoughts that I've heard on that subject. Um, but I, I haven't done a lot of research into that. I have fed mine on occasion, a, a rat. And I think in the wild, you know, that, that was another fun thing to do is to get into the literature about, uh, I, um, so reading, reading papers on green tree pythons, you see these um, food studies that, you know, the uh, stomach content studies that they've done to try to identify what, what green tree pythons are eating in the wild. And it listed a few of the rodent or, or rodent or marsupial species by their, you know, Latin names. So I could look up papers on the, you know, the, the mammalian species that live in the Cape York rainforest. 
Hmm. And there were three. There was actually this series of papers put out by um, a researcher that had been, you know, sloshing through the jungles looking for rodents and studying their breeding behaviors and, and had some really cool observations on these uh, um, different mammal species. And, uh, and, ta- and so I got into more of that, looked up how big these things are, you know, how big are they when they're weaned. And, uh, you know, for, for example, the um, Melomus capensis, which is the Cape York Melomus, um, okay. we, we actually saw one of those when we were in the, in the jungle. I got a picture of it while I was, uh, in, in the Cape York rainforest and, uh, um, they, they weigh between 45 and 52 grams at maturity, but they could get up to a hundred grams or more. And, uh, you know, males are bigger, which is similar with other rodent species and, or Melomus. I don't, yeah, but, uh, I, I'm not sure if they're rodents or, or, uh, marsupials but i i think uh, these might be rodents they look like a mouse anyway <laughs> right um but so when they're when they're weaned um they're about 20 grams which is you know for people who keep mice and rats that's the size of a of a young adult mouse is about 20 grams so an adult okay. mouse weighs about 20 grams right they can get up to maybe 25 or 30 grams um, when they're big, you know, huge males, but usually when you have a weanling mouse, it's, you know, between 15 and 20 grams. And so these, uh, Cape York Malomus, they're, they're, uh, at weaning size when they're dumb running around, stumbling around the rainforest, they just got kicked out of the nest when they'd be mm-hmm. a prime target for a green tree python. They're about 20 grams, right? Now a rat is quite a bit bigger than 20 grams as, as an adult, right? An adult right. rat is probably, you know, up in the 150 uh, to maybe 200 gram range. So they're, they're, you know, five, five to six or seven times as large as a mouse. So, um, you know, from that perspective, I, I think, okay, so they're wild, their natural prey is weaned about 20 grams when they're the easiest target. Um, so, that's probably going to be the size you're going to want to feed your green tree pythons, about the size of an adult mouse. Um, others, uh, let's see, the Cape York rat, they were, they're apparently a smaller species of rat, and mm-hmm. they wean at around 20 to 30 grams. Um, so, you know, there's, they're uh, very similar to the Cape York malomus. So those are two two of the species that they feed on or they've been recorded to feed on in the wild, at least in the iron range. Um, there's other, what was the other thing? There was like a, a cinnamon antichinus or something like that. A little, um, I know that one's a marsupial <laughs> and uh, it's, it's semi arboreal. Um, you know, they, they hang around and they're, um, they're around 26 grams when they're weaned and they reach maturity around 54 grams. So the three, um, species of of mammals in the Cape York rainforest that that have, have been found in the stomach contents of a green tree python, all are weaned around 20 to 30 grams, about the size of a mouse. And so, you know, in my mind, I think, well, you know, feed them adult mice. You know what's in? Perfect, perfect size for for uh, green tree pythons based on their natural history. Um, you know, can they eat bigger items? Of course they can. Can you know? But uh, if Should you're feeding them this, this, yeah, that's that's the question. And again, you know, if they're if you take into consideration these have adapted to climb, you know, twenty to sixty feet up a tree every day, 
Are they going to want to do that with a giant food bolus sticking out? You know, are they going to get stuck mm-hmm. in, in between branches and things as they try to make their way up the canopy? And so that's another thing to consider. These are a lean-bodied snake that don't feed very often. So, you know, if you're feeding them smaller food items like mice um, and it doesn't leave a, a very big lump, you can maybe feed them more often and kind of have that aspect of feeding. You could feed them a hopper mouse and feed them even more often then, you know, because they're going to be hungry and move around a little sooner if they're eating smaller food items. So you can increase your feeding uh, frequency so you can have that interaction with your snake, which is, you know, kind of a, one of the ways that we interact with our snakes is we feed them. Um, otherwise, you know, you can hold them and, and watch them, but uh, when you feed them, you get that strike and that coil and that excitement, you know, and I guess it gets a little old hat for us as we keep 20 <laughs> to 100, 100 snakes. You're feeding 100 snakes a week. It's not that exciting anymore, but um, I'm always, you know, every, anytime somebody comes over, they want to see them eat, you know, yeah. feed one for me, you know, and they get all excited when it strikes and coils, and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> Okay. All right, yeah, it's going to take a while. We'll yeah. be here for 10, 10 minutes, and that's annoying. But, yeah, exactly. I understand. Yeah. So, so the, you know, that excitement is what, what I think we all as keepers kind of enjoy that, you know, feeding our snakes and interacting with them that way. So um, otherwise, you know, if you if you have only feed them once a month, you might feel like you're neglecting them or you're <laughs> not doing your job right. Not being nice so, in. Yeah, but I think, you know, as far as it goes with feeding size, I personally, I believe that I'm going to shoot for feeding them mice their whole life. Um, same with my Anteresia. They're kind of a similar size. You know, they're, they're maybe a little smaller, maybe uh, three to four, 500 grams. But, you know, they're about the same size as an adult green tree python, uh, at least a wild green tree python. <laughs> so um, and I feed my Anteresia mice. I don't really try to feed them rats uh, very much. So, does that also? I, I mean, does that also include African softbirds? Because I know that's kind of like the green tree python, like equivalent. Uh, I've heard a lot of people say they don't like to move green trees onto rats, but they'll move them onto African softbirds because that gets a little bit bigger, can get a little bit healthier, it's better nutritional wise. Would you kind of count that as a viable food option for green trees? Um, you know, I've always been been interested in the rats versus mouse debate. You know, people say, "Oh, my snake does better on rats than mice." And uh, honestly, I, I really haven't seen much compelling um, data to support that. You know, most of it's anecdotal. Well, I fed him mice, and then I switched to rats, and he did so much better. You know, it's never like I had 20 animals and I split them into two groups. You know, 10 10 animals yeah. in each group, and I fed one only mice, and I fed the other only rats, and I weighed the rats and mice and made sure they had equivalent amounts of you know weight. <laughs> In their food, yeah. in their feedings, you know, things like that. So that's not done, right? Herpetoculturists no, don't often do those kind of proper studies, and so you know it's really hard to say is a rat better than a mouse. And, and honestly, I think you know they're. Uh, we can ask Nick. He ate a rat at the carpet fest. Yeah, but, true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe we need to feed him a mouse and see which one. Yeah, we need to have the control <laughs> group, and they, they, we should do both, all of them. Yeah. See how he feels. But, uh, see how much he can bench the next day. So I, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's energy in, you know, I think a mouse is pretty much equivalent to a rat, except one's bigger than the other. So if you got a big snake, feed them rats. If you got a smaller snake, feed them mice. <laughs> I don't know that Makes you're going to, I think 
the difference is maybe when you're comparing a young rat with an old mouse or vice versa, you know, if you're, you're feeding a lot of young animals, I can see, you know, that might be an additional, uh, they have a different composition when they're young as compared to when they're old. But I think an old rat and an old mouse are fairly similar. Maybe the rat has denser bones or bigger bones and things like that. So that could contribute to something, but yeah, I really haven't seen much data to suggest that it's better to feed rats versus mice or mice versus rats. So uh, the jury's still out in my mind. (laughs) Okay. So uh, you'd mentioned a little bit earlier before about uh, you wanting Rico to uh, write the book. And I know that he has a, there's a Rico section of the book. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, that's one of my uh, favorite memories is we were, we were driving through, uh, through Darwin on our way out of town to go herping. And it was uh, uh, Peter Birch uh, was driving. I was uh, in, in the back seat. I think who else was in there? Nick was there, of course. I think Rico was in the front seat. And then um, Mark Spataro was there. Mm. And uh, we were driving along. We'd just gotten Magnum bars. Have you guys eaten Magnum bars, those ice cream bars from Europe or oh, whatever? Oh, yeah, okay. Really yeah. I get what you're talking about. Great yeah. chocolate, really, you know, tasty stuff. So we, we were all all eating our Magnum bars or whatever. And, of course, Nick, is he's talking. He's he's going on and on. And he's got his Magnum bar, and it's melting slowly. And all of a sudden, the wind catches it and, it's like, takes takes the the chocolate and splatters it across uh, Mark Spataro's face. <laughs> and <laughs> and Nick's, so, Nick's so into the conversation that he doesn't realize what has just happened. And we, we all kind of look at Mark, and we look back at Nick, and we're kind of laughing, kind of snickering. <laughs> and uh, Nick kind of stops. He's like, what's so funny? What's going on? And Mark's, like, wiping chocolate off his face, like, <laughs> dude, eat your Magnum bar. Shut up and eat it. <laughs> it's kind of funny. But, but anyway, we were talking to – talking to Rico and we were talking about green tree pythons kind of that was the subject and and uh you know we said Rico you really need to you really need to write all this stuff down you really need to write a book and and uh and he's like yeah you know I do I'd like to do that I think it would be a a good thing and you know we all kind of realize you know there's there's a few misconceptions that are perpetuated by some of the literatures out there and I've heard some of the guys uh, talk about uh, Greg Maxwell's book in not so nice terms I'll I'll try to stay civil here but (laughs) there's there's been some negativity around some of the things in that book so um, so you know there was kind of consensus in the car that there was another a new book was needed um, to kind of clear up some of these things. And, and granted, great, you know, Maxwell wrote his books before a lot of these things had been published or, or maybe they weren't available right. to him. And so he may not have known them or been able to access these papers that were being published on green tree pythons. So, um, you know, that, that may be why that information was not in the book. But so, they, you know, we came to the conclusion that a new book needed to be written and Rico was the perfect one to write it and we, we kind of jokingly said let's call it the correct chondro <laughs> oh my that god <laughs> that is awesome <laughs> okay i said i was going to keep it civil and I that, <laughs> yes it's, it's, i don't know it's good that's good enough <laughs> but, uh, good enough that's good <laughs> so I, I always kind of in the back of my mind laughed that, you know maybe we'll call it the correct chondro but so rico <laughs> said no no we're not going to do that that's not you know that's not on the table but um you know so we were hoping that he would be able to write the book and 
and uh unfortunately you know that that wasn't the that wasn't the case and Rico was taken too soon for sure um the big loss to to herpeticulture and I was just really lucky to to be able to have met him and gone on some of those trips with him just stand-up guy wealth of knowledge very humble very uh just he would just kind of sit back and listen he didn't talk a lot and but when he did he just dropped these you know truth bombs on you and you realize that you should be the one shutting up and listening and he should be the one talking because he was just um just a very knowledgeable and 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 fat you know just a curious person um we went to uh greg miles's house in in darwin area and he has this huge like outdoor pond that he's made you know out of the dirt and stuff and it's like a little beach and next like a big pool and he's got like one section that's like a living filter it's got all these plants planted in there and and uh the water circulates through there and kind of gets cleaned up from all the turtle junk and then it filters back into the pool where the turtles are and so he he let us come over and put on the snorkeling equipment and go swim around with these fly river turtles which are basically freshwater you know sea turtles they have the same kind Mm -hmm. of flipper structure they're they're completely aquatic except for when they come and lay their eggs on the bank and um you know it's a really cool turtle species and and rico was i mean he was he was the turtle man back in the day like he worked a lot with turtles in his zoo work and before he kind of became a private breeder um he was he was working a lot with turtles and was responsible for one of the uh, species protection plans uh, um, with uh, I think it was the one of the slider species, but uh, so you know we thought he'd be the first one in the pool swimming with these um, fly river turtles. Well, he he was over like looking through the plants. He was like, oh, what's you know what's going on over here? And he was asking all these questions. We're like, oh yeah, that is weird. I didn't even notice that was over there. You know, <laughs> Rico's over there like wading around looking at plants looking through there and he's like are there any other species and then, oh there's a couple of these he, he rattled off some scientific names and Rico's like oh really and he starts diving through the plants looking for these other turtles <laughs> and you know they were it was like impossible to find because this place was like a like a jungle you know you couldn't see with all the plants over there and so they had a lot of good hiding areas so I don't even know if he he might have found one or two but um, so he spent his whole time over in that other section. We're like, Rico, come swim with the fly rivers. You know, this is cool stuff. And, yeah. But, you know, just so fascinated and curious by stuff that, you know, most people just kind of ignore or don't even notice. And he's over there spending all his time uh, researching, you know. I remember with that same trip we were out, we found a, a uh, um, roadkill children's python. And it was when we were yeah. writing the – the children's Python book. And it was me and Rico and um, Peter Birch and Nick. So it was like the, the three authors of the complete uh, children's Python and, and Rico. And we found this roadkill children's Python and there was a big lump in it. And so um, Peter starts working out the lump so we can see what's in it. And, and uh, so we're like, Ooh, you know, that's a cool observation. And we start walking away and Rico's like, ah, aren't you guys writing a book on these things? And he like, (laughs) he gets out his ruler. He starts measuring the size of the snake and the size of the food item. And like, he's weighing everything and, and writing down all these notes. And he's got like this waterproof paper with a, with a, you know, waterproof pencil that can write in the rain. And, you know, he's taking all these detailed notes. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm an idiot. You know, I should be writing this stuff down <laughs> for, the, for the book, you know. What a... So 
he he kind of schooled me there, but just such a um, curious and and just a scientist, right? A scientist at heart, and um, I learned a lot from from Rico that way as well. And uh, just you know, he he knew a lot, and he and he knew that he needed to know more, you know. So he was always looking into these things, and so that was kind of the you know the reason that I thought let's let's get this book written and and dedicated to Rico and and I wanted to include that little uh um you know chapter or whatever uh, extra chapter at the end about Rico just so people would know who he was I think it was mm-hmm. somebody I can't remember who who was on your show that you were interviewing him and they were talking about Rico and they said a lot of people now don't even know who Rico was you know it wasn't that long ago that he passed away so his legacy yeah. is kind of fading a little bit with the rising hurt generation. So I, I'm hoping this is one way to kind of keep his name and his story out there. So people remember Rico and, and uh, can, you know, get, get a little glimpse into what an amazing person he was. And uh, we were also really fortunate to um, be able to acquire his hard drive um, with all his, uh, pictures and, and data and, wow. and things like that. Um, it, it didn't have all the children's Python notes. I was hoping, I think those must still be on a notebook somewhere, uh, you know, it was, uh, in a, in a box somewhere, but, um, I was able to get, you know, his digital information. And so we were able to get his, um, information on, on the, uh, um, ultrasound information he he was really starting mm-hmm. to use the ultrasound and uh and record all this information on on you know chondros u- using his ultrasound so that was really uh, a great you know wealth of information there so i included yeah. some of that information in the breeding chapter um follicle sizes at different you know st- stages of reproduction i mean that's really important information that uh, I hadn't seen before, you know, out there. I, you know, granted, it's hard to find that kind of stuff sometimes. And a lot of keepers kind of keep that stuff as grit, but um, the way Rico had it was in a presentation that he'd given, you know. So he was he was <laughs> sharing it with, with anybody who would listen. So um, I thought that was really uh, fitting to be able to have that information and put it in the book. So we were really glad. I think it was uh, Julie Bender that had the – um, GFX ferret or whatever she goes by yeah. online, uh, Julie. And so, um, she, she, uh, Terry or yeah, Terry was able to kind of facilitate that. And, and so she sent it to him and he sent it to me. And so I was able to kind of compile a lot. And so a lot of the pictures in the book are from Rico. A lot of the data in the book is from Rico. So that was, uh, hopefully a fitting tribute to him, uh, the, the one who should have written the book. But, That's uh, awesome. Yeah. Great, man. I, you know, I get a little, little sad talking about him and remembering some of those great, great memories, but I'm, I'm really glad that I have those uh, memories of Rico and uh, was able to spend that time with him. Um, I, I, he, he was really fun to herp with too. I remember we, yeah. we, uh, we were herping around that same on that same Darwin trip and, and he's like, Hey guys, I got a monitor. And, and so we, we run over and he's, he's holding this tail that's sticking out of the ground. <laughs> we're like, well, mm-hmm. you've got part of the monitor, but and he's like, all right, before we dig it up, we got to guess, you know, guess what species it is. So we made us all 
make our uh, our guesses on what we thought it was, what species it was. <laughs> so it was kind of funny that way. I, I don't want to brag or anything, but I, I got it right. So I won't. Say <laughs> <laughs> and everybody, I was for, correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I did, yeah. You got to you got to take your wins where you get them right. But um, oh yeah. So it was a it was a Varanus uh, bar, barichi or I, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's the the yellow uh, throated monitor. They look a lot like uh, Acanthurus, like a lot like Ackies, but they're right. uh, different species up north. And they have this really brilliant yellow throat, at, you know, sometimes of the year. And some individuals have more yellow and less yellow, you know. But this thing was really reduced pattern, had really reduced ocelot on its back and stuff. It was kind of cool. So uh, I, th- I put a picture of that. But, yeah, Rico posed with it like he was going to take a bite out of it, you know. <laughs> it's just really fun. fun to herp with, you know, make you guess what it was. Um, we were walking through the, the jungle um, in – uh, can, cans area and we were walking under this uh, vine and it was me and Rico and uh, I think Rob Roy McGinnis and and uh, we were walking looking for whatever we could find you know I was hoping for a jungle carpet or something and and uh, and so we walk into this vine and he's like aren't you gonna at least take a look at that uh, Boyd's rainforest you know Boyd's forest dragon and we look back and right on the Right on the vine, right over our head was this Boyd's forest dragon. Oh my god! <laughs> so, and uh, he he saw it, so that was kind of he he uh, he got us he got us there. He got that prize, I guess. So, so that was fun. Now I know we've we've talked numerous times with you about like your little Australian adventures, but as like have, <laughs> were there any that kind of like stick out to being important to the book, uh, or are there any that are just like your favorite? You absolutely like want to just tell us because it's awesome so well i i think we talked about last time i was on here yeah. you know and whenever you go and you see a new animal in the wild it just like sticks in your brain you got to learn about it you got to know about it you want to keep them you want to you know know everything you can about them and so that was mm-hmm. kind of this we were we were driving through the the rainforest in cape york and and uh um, i'd read this cool book it's called stalking the plume circuit serpent and i i might have okay. told the story before so ho- hopefully it's not a repeat but um just a cool book but it it describes how this uh bruce means was doing the same thing going through the rainforest looking for green tree pythons so he's kind of kind of gives you the tips on how to find a green tree in the wild so it's kind of cool but so we were driving through just looking into the undergrowth trying to find a green tree and like i see this like neon sign you know and it it was a green tree python just glowing in the light of my flashlight just as clear as day like there is no mistake and i mean that that is an image that just sticks in your brain you know that's one that's not going to fade anytime soon (laughs) and so you know we get out of the car and again, it's me and Rico. Uh, my dad was there, and our friend Jason Boys, um, an Australian guy, just a uh, good guy. Um, but we we start uh, we walk up to it, and just everybody is just silent. You know, all you hear is camera clicks and whispers and just <laughs> hushed tones. Like if we talk too loud, it's going to disappear and it won't be there anymore. So, and, and, you know, just seeing this thing was just in a perfect ambush position around the trunk of a tree, kind of a smaller tree, maybe, you know, about, you know, 10 inches around or something, just kind of a smaller tree trunk. And it was wrapped around and hanging down, just waiting for something to pass by. And uh, we just sat and 
soaked it in. <laughs> Rico gets out his, his notebook and he starts writing stuff down and like he's taking the <laughs> air temperature above his head and below his head and on the ground. Like he's getting three different levels of temperature, you know, and he's measuring how big the tree trunk is and he's measuring the, the temperature of the body surface of the snake. And, uh, you know, he's recording the humidity. I mean, just like taking all these great notes about our, this observation, you know, one snake and it was really cool. You know, he just sprang into action, gathering all this data. And so I was just trying to take as many pictures as I could so I could actually get a good picture of it. And uh, <laughs> that's actually he's, the animal. He's getting all that stuff. Yeah. 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 And that's the, the animal that's on the cover of the book is that, that uh, green tree python. So um, that was the thing that did it for me. And after that's that, cool. I, I had to, I had to know about green trees. I had to learn more and find out more. So that's kind of what uh, the, what kind of got me on the, the, uh, the idea in my head to write about green tree pythons. <laughs> yeah. awesome. That is, that is, Awesome. And I love the fact that it's like a picture of an animal that you took. So I know that like uh, one of the auction items we had in Carpet Fest this year was uh, Chris Salemi went to Australia and he had a picture of a green tree python printed up on some canvas and we auctioned it off. And I, it oh, was cool. so cool because it was like he found this thing like you could see the, the parasites in its body <laughs> because yeah. it was like that gross of a wild animal. So it's like having a wild animal like that one being the cover of the book is just kind of awesome too. So I like that idea. Yeah, That's cool. And, and, you know, speaking of those little parasites, we, um, this, you can see them on the one that I got on my, my book as well. There's, there's those little bumps and, and you can see kind of the, those uh, skin cysts. I remember when I got the, uh, that book by Rick Shine, Australian snakes, you guys have that book? Yes. Australian uh-huh. Snakes by Richard Shine. Fantastic book, right? I, I, I don't know if this is every cover, but he's got a green tree python in his cover. And, man, this thing looks gnarly. It's got these skin cysts, you know. It's like this thin <laughs> thing. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm looking at that going, why did he take some disease-ridden, you know, ugly, <laughs> you know, little scrawny, underfed, you know, green yeah. tree python. That looks nothing like the ones I see in the zoo or in the <laughs> pet shops or and you know that's what they look like. That's a wild green tree python right there. Yeah. Um, that that conversation came up too on that trip because we went up with uh, Michael Cermak, uh, Australian. Well, he's an expat living in Australia, but um, he he that's about all he keeps are green tree pythons, and he's got these fantastic outdoor cages. He let us come over to his house and check out his green tree python enclosures, and he was up there with us in the Cape York. Um, at least for a, a couple of the days when we, he, he was up there one night when we went looking for green tree pythons, we didn't find anything that night. And it was the next night that we went and it was kind of funny too, because we were supposed to be going to this, um, tree, Alan Rapashi and some of the other guys that were in their car, um, were going to this tree to, it was like the smuggler's tree where they took parrots and we kind of ditched them and went and looked for green tree pythons instead. So they were kind of pissed <laughs> off that we went and found a green tree while they went to this tree, you know, it wasn't, wasn't quite as exciting as they thought, I guess. I don't know, but they were you nice. Chose wrong. A, yeah. <laughs> a spice, but you know, they, they were still cool about it, but, um, so we, uh, uh, but, um, what was my point there? The, uh, um, I totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> Man. 
that was bad. No um, oh, Cermak, okay. Michael Cermak, yeah, was uh, so he he had left us, but we went out and found our own. But we were talking about you know the skin cysts, and because we after we found mm-hmm. this one, we were asking him, you know, what's with all the bumps all over him, and we were talking about that, and he his his thoughts were that this was um, uh, their the result of eating frogs. That frogs have these um, little parasites that get into the snakes, and it's not their natural host, and so they they can't go and, and infect the snake and so they form a little cyst and just kind of die and have a little knob in the skin of the snakes and really this would be an interesting project I, I wonder if anybody's looked into this to see what you know identify what the what the skin cysts are from what you know what parasite that's from because I don't I couldn't find anything on that topic so if anybody knows yeah. what these you know, skin cysts are, or what species they are, or what, you know, parasite they are, I'd be really interested to hear that. But, uh, it, so Michael Cermak was talking about how this would, was probably because they were eating frogs, and, you know, the parasites were from the frogs, and, but all the um, dietary analysis just didn't have um, anything about frogs, you know, they really didn't report frogs in the diet of green tree pythons and so mike michael and i t- talked about that a little bit you know we we're um discussing kind of back and forth about that and and uh, it could be you know that this is a seasonal thing that they eat frogs at certain times of the year you know when it's raining a lot and maybe that's the time when the researchers aren't out uh gathering data you know or gathering specimens because it's the rainy season and you can't even really access it except by plane or boat or you know you can't drive mm-hmm. up there because the you have to cross several rivers uh, when you're driving from Cairns up to the Iron Range. And uh, when we went up, uh, it was like the, ta- it was uh, October. And so it was kind of the tail end of the dry season, but not quite to the wet season yet. And so we start driving across this river and I, for, for, I was driving at the time when we crossed one of the rivers and it was like a real river, you know, rocks in the bottom and you're, and so I'm starting to drive and I've got everybody like, speed up, slow down, what are, you know, yelling different instructions at me. I'm like, oh, crap. You know, and, and right before you start to go across the river, there's these big signs that says, do not, you know, get out of your car. This is crocodile infested waters. Kind of thing. You're thinking, okay. Oh, my so, God. Yeah, you, you got that added little aspect of the river. And so I'm freaking out. And, and so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm starting to slow down. We're starting to get bogged. And I'm like, oh, crap, I'm going to get stuck in the middle of the river. And there's crocodiles going to swim and eat us all or something. But um, so I, I start, I kind of hit the gas and, and just barely get out of this river. And I'm like, holy crap. So I stopped and jumped out and and said, I'm not driving anymore. Like I'm not <laughs> done. I'm not going to be the reason we die yeah. here. You know? Yeah. That's, uh, that's another, that was a, yeah. But, so we, that was a little uh, sketchy. So, you know, people probably aren't driving up there during the wet season. And, you know, I know that some researchers have done studies during the wet season and have found that, they're, that the green tree pythons are fairly locally abundant up there, especially during the wet season when they're active. You know, they're out looking for food and, and looking for mates and things like that. So, um, but I, I don't know if any stomach content analysis, you know, they don't really, well, I guess some of the studies may say when they, when they looked, but, you know, it could be that the, these studies that looked at stomach context were, were just done at the wrong time of year. And so they didn't report any frogs because other times of the year they don't eat frogs, you know, that, that yeah. could be. And Michael says he's fed his uh, um, snakes frogs and they've taken them, you know, they recognized them as food sources when they wouldn't take a, 
uh, mouse. Um, so, really? you know, a younger animal. So potentially, you know, frogs could be a, a part of the diet that just, you know, hasn't been researched or, or researched at the right time. We all know that, uh, you know, reptiles have seasonal feeding behaviors. And um, that was evident when I was researching for the children's python book. I found a, a, an article about Stimson's pythons, and it was another stomach content analysis, and there were frogs. And I, I read another article, or I saw pictures online, like somebody's herping trip to Alice Springs, and it was during the spring, and it had been raining, and there were frogs were out breeding. And there was a picture of a Stimson's python eating a frog, you know. So, mm. yeah, they, they eat frogs. If it's there. The year. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's an abundant It's hard food to find source. food sometimes, yeah. you know. So if you're a python, you're probably going to take a meal, even if it's something you're maybe not completely used to. Although um, it was really interesting to hear um, Daniel Natouche talk about the the uh, starlings, you know, the birds and, and all the animals that were coming out of the forest to try to eat. Um, young starlings or, you know, that have fallen out mm-hmm. of a nest or something like that, or the seeds, you know, all the mammals coming out of the forest to eat the seeds that the starlings were dropping. And then you've got the green tree pythons waiting for the small mammals to, you know, pass by to get the seeds and they grab a mammal kind of opportunistic there. So they weren't interested in the birds, but they wanted to get the mammals that were coming in for the seeds. So, you know, nice. it's, it, I, I think there are some things that the snakes don't necessarily want to eat and you know anybody who keeps jungles and all they have a little bit of an aversion to rats at times you know unless you get started fairly early and so you know there's some some things they don't recognize as food all you know my anteresia babies uh, a lot of times they'll hatch out looking for lizards they're you know kind of genetically programmed to to recognize lizards as as food and so sometimes it's a little bit of a struggle to get them to eat you know stuff we want them to eat (laughs) But uh, that's the nature of the beast, I guess. You can't, just because you're sticking in a box, it's really hard to change their nature, you know. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> so was there something that had to uh, be adjusted after writing the book uh, when it comes to keeping and breeding green tree pythons? Like, did you throw it all out there and then have to go back and redo it because you learned something else or somebody told you a different way of doing something? I think that's always kind of an element of yeah. of uh, writing a book is, you know, sometimes you, you got to be open to other ideas and other mm-hmm. ways and successful ways. So, you know, that that's always a struggle because you want to make sure you're presenting the best data you can or the best information you have at the time. And I think, you know, a lot of the ways that were, that, that have been used to keep green tri- tree python, I kind of liken it to um, intensive care. You know, if you, <laughs> you know, the, the early, early green tree pythons were brought in, you know, they were captured in New Guinea, they were held in captivity for a certain amount of time, and then they were stuck on a boat in probably horrible conditions and shipped, you know, several weeks across the ocean <clears throat> where they wound up in, in the United States. And, and then these people would, would get these wild caught, you know, parasitized, um, animals that had been in horrible care and had been shipped in a crate across the ocean, and they were just trying to keep them alive, right? That was their mm-hmm. only goal, keep this thing alive. So they were on intensive breathing. care, yeah. you know. 
they they won't drink out of bowl and a spray with water, you know, so they get some moisture and so they drink off their coils or whatever. Okay. If they do that, that's fine. I'll take it, you know, take whatever I can get them to do. So, you know, but there's a certain you know time when, when you, you know, if you have a normal, you know, baby that's born, you don't stick it in intensive care unless it has issues and it needs intensive care. So once we start getting captive born babies or, or captive bred babies, you know, they don't need those kind of things. You set them up, you give them a water bowl, they learn to drink out of their water bowl, you know, they're fine. It's not, they don't have to be sprayed down. So I think, you know, a lot of times we just want a care sheet. We want a formula. We want simple to way. follow yeah. what somebody's done before um, because it worked for them. And, and, you know, it worked for these initial guys. And, you know, they're the kind of some of the pioneers that kind of forged the way and got these first um, captive born animals and um, but I think a lot of times we think okay these initial ways that they got that's the most successful way but I think it's you know it's intensive care and I don't think it's necessarily important and I, and I think this is you know something that's probably not new to, to you guys or to people listening and that's something that's been talked about by Terry or, or Ryan or some of the other people that have, have been on the show but you know that's some of those things were were you know, honestly, if you if you're giving a baby intensive care, it's not necessary, and it can potentially be damaging because you're keeping them from their mother or from nursing or whatever. You know, there's a lot of things beneficial things that they could be doing that they're not getting because they're stuck in an intensive care unit. You know, be unnecessarily. So, are we doing the same thing with our green tree pythons, keeping them in an intensive care situation when it's not needed and it's actually harmful? Um, and then on the other side, you know, we've got that aspect of I got to get it up to size. I got to make it breed fast. I got to get my money back for this animal, you know, this $400 animal I just bought. And so we want it to breed as soon as possible. So we feed it as much as it'll eat. And, you know, and then we wind up with an obese snake and wonder where things went wrong. And we get a 68 clutch with about five good eggs in it, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. You know, right. those those kind of things, I think it's so it's it's hard to hard to recognize that point. And I think we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. We have, you know, people who have done a lot of work. And, you know, I don't want to discredit the work of anybody, you know, early on in the game, Trooper Walsh or, you know, people like him, the Barkers, you know, people who, who have definitely just, given their whole heart and soul to herpeticulture and have done all these amazing things and gotten all these different python species established in captivity. I mean, that's, that's a fantastic feat and it's very important, but I, I still think there's, there's more to learn. You know, I, I guarantee they would admit they don't know everything and that they have a lot to learn as well. And I, I think that's what keeps us going. The more you learn, um, the more you know, the more you learn, the more you learn you don't know a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, and it and it and it just it's just easier to say, well, give me a care sheet, you know, give me a give me the down low, just let me know how how you do it successfully. And you know, I think that's a reasonable place to start. I think mm-hmm. you know when you get an animal, you want to keep it alive. <laughs> First mm-hmm. off, you don't want to just start doing all these you know different experiments on it, trying to figure out how to improve. But I think once you've kind of gotten in the rhythm and you're really good at producing a, a certain species or or a certain type of animal, you want to uh, you know try to learn more, try to try to adjust things, try to change things, try to 
do do uh, better and better. And so you can refine and improve and keep learning and keep growing. Um, if you don't, you just stagnate. You just get the same results, right? Right. Who knows what we're missing if we don't try to improve it or try to find out what we can do better. You know, I, like Harlan looking at the snake poop and finding teeth in there, you know, like saying, wait, this is probably not right. You know, I, I'm sure he was keeping green tree pythons to the best of his ability, but there's still something that's going wrong. You know, his observation about how um, wild caught green tree pythons that breed have healthier and stronger babies that don't have prolapse, you know, things like that, where it's like, how does that work? What's going on here? You know, that's a cool observation. And, and we have a lot to learn. There's still a long way to go. We haven't figured it all out. You know, Mm -hmm. every time somebody, somebody, um, quotes, you know, something or science has proved this or that, you know, I think there's a reason we talk about scientific theory and hypotheses and we, we very rarely say this is how it is. You know, this is the bottom line. We know this for certain because how often does, do those attitudes and how often does that knowledge change and adjust? And, and, you know, with new information, we find out, different things. And a lot of this stuff comes serendipitously, you know, the guys who discovered penicillin, they had a contaminant on their plates and then all of a sudden, oh, hey, this stuff kills bacteria. What is this? You know, and they, they figured <laughs> out it's mold, you know, something. So it was something that ruined their experiments, but they were, they were keyed in and smart enough to recognize some, uh, something else was going on and a benefit. And how often do we miss those things? You know, we need to keep that scientific mind, uh, keyed in and uh, always be looking for, for interesting th- observations. And we, and that's, that's what makes really takes, takes this uh, um, herpetoculture herpetology to the next level is when we talk to our buddies, I, I love talking with Terry Phillip on the phone. We have the greatest conversations about um, these things. I, I think that would almost be a, a really cool podcast is to just, record phone phone conversations and, and plan for everybody mm-hmm. to hear, you know, because, you know, we're talking oh, yeah. about these really cool things and scientific observations and things we've seen in our captives and things people have talked about in wild snakes, you know, it just, and it, and it builds and builds. And after, you know, we're both kind of edified and, and, um, you know, we, we come away from the conversation excited about learning new things or finding out more or, or going deeper, you know, finding, finding more things out. And so, now that's what it's about, right? That's what that's what we want to keep keep moving forward and keep finding new things. So, um, you know, this book may be a, a modest attempt at that, but uh, you know, we need to to try to improve things, even if we think they're they're great or they're fine as they are. I'm having success. I'm making baby snakes, and I'm selling them just fine. You know, why not why not use that to further refine and further improve? You know. That's uh, yeah. what what makes this exciting and interesting. I mean, it's fun to breed and sell snakes, but you know, more than that, I think we all kind of go back to that fascination, that excitement. You know, when you get that new mm-hmm. species, and you're just you're just thrilled to have a rough scale python or a you know a bullies <laughs> python or, <laughs> oh, or an African rock word. python. You know, yeah, yeah. Oh, so, well. And I mean, I I I agree. That's that's exciting stuff, and I think we can still have that even with the stuff we've kept for 20 years, we can still have that excitement and that learning and that um, we just have to pay attention. Um, Mm -hmm. We just have to, 
throw new variables into the mix, you know, try new things. And yeah, maybe some won't work and maybe some will be more detrimental and we'll go, okay, that's something, that's a path we don't want to follow. And we have to share that with others. Like, oh, I tried this and failed miserably. You know, we all want to <laughs> try to, try to don't remain anybody else do that. And, Exactly. We want, we want, yeah. we never want to admit that something we did was bad or wrong or faulty, you know, but I think that's, we learn as much from our mistakes as we learn from our successes in a lot of cases, even mm. more, you know, so we need to be uh, willing to share that and willing to talk about that. And I think it's easier kind of on a one-to-one thing, you know, we talk to our friends on the phone and we can say, Man, I really screwed up. I did this or I forgot to do this and that really messed things up, you know, <laughs> Um, but sometimes we can have really serendipitous discoveries like, oh, I mm-hmm. forgot to turn off the heat and, or I put my snakes together for cleaning during the weirdest time of the year and they started breeding, you know, who would have thought that these snakes would breed at this time of year? Let's see if it's productive. You know? And then yeah. I just discovered, you know, black, white lip pythons need to, need to breed it, you know, during the, the summer instead of the winter, you know, those kind of things, you know, we might find out just odd um, serendipitous things by trying weird new things, you know. A lot of people think I'm kind of crazy for keeping a lot of my snakes together. I keep them together most of the year, and, uh, you know, it, it's worked really well for me. And a lot of people say, oh, I, I would never do that. It doesn't work. You know, you got to introduce them every week for four days and then take them away and then introduce them the next four. You know, they have this whole mm-hmm. schedule, and I'm like, well, you know, that's great, but maybe I'm just lazy or maybe <laughs> I, I, I think a certain different way, you know, and, and so we can compare notes and try to figure that out. And that was, that was kind of one of the fun things about writing the carpet Python book with Nick is, you know, he, he had a kind of a more formulaic and he has a lot more snakes than I do. So it probably makes sense to have, you know, a formula so you can kind of have uh, predictable um, snakes to, to supply your income. So, uh, right. So we had different ways of breeding things. And so we're thinking, okay, how are we going to present this? How do we present, you know, several different ideas or ways of breeding things and, and not favor one or the other just because, you know, he's writing the chapter or whatever, you know, he, of course he's going to think the way he does it is the best way. And, and you know, maybe. So, you know, we've got to right. put all those ideas out there and data out there. It's important. I agree. I totally agree. Um, uh, I'm going to backtrack a little bit because I wanted to make sure that we hit on all of uh, other buddies' uh, questions. Um, sure. He talks about um, – let's see. This is so this isn't really a question, but I think he's tying this together. Sarongs <laughs> that are imported into – that are imported into Europe have a lot more high yellow animals than sarongs that are brought into the U S I guess he's asking if that's accurate or what you think is going there. I, I, wouldn't that just stating a fact (laughs) like the animal is not necessarily coming from sarong. So maybe they're getting it from different places. And then his other question is why do you have any thoughts on the reason that captive breeding hasn't been able to reproduce the amount of white you see in wild caught uh, and farm bred animals. I guess he's talking like a ruse, like mm-hmm. trying to get that high white. Sure. Yeah. Those are, those are questions. I think that, you know, again, I, I, I gotta admit that my, uh, 
knowledge on the locality stuff is is not as broad as as others and and uh, I mean somebody like Harlan who know who could probably pick out different localities from a box full of neonates and name all the different localities. I'm not that guy, but <laughs> I you know I I think uh, a lot of these import import uh, things um, you know they'll come in. Uh, so let me how do I phrase this? So. You know, there's an importer in the, on the Indo side, and there's an importer on the European side, and and the importers for the U.S. Uh, U.S. importers might have different Indo collectors than the ones that are going to Europe. So it could be just a matter of, you know, this guy has this territory, he collects on this side of Sarong, and this other guy collects from this side of Sarong, and this guy's animals go to Europe, and this guy's animals go to America, and they're slightly different. You know, this guy has more yellow, or the, whereas this guy doesn't. You know, I don't know for sure if that's how it works, but that, you know, that kind of pops into my head as a possible explanation why Sarongs coming into Europe have more yellow. Um, probably, yeah because they're being collected from a different area by a different guy going to a different exporter. And, or, you know, it could be the European importer. Um, he got um, some of these ye- more yellow animals and he, and he talked to his buddy that, that the exporter on the Indo side and said, Hey, look for more of those yellow things. That's what I want. And some secret location. And this exporter has, you know, the, that Intel. And so he can go get those more yellow animals. And we see that in, in, uh, herps across the world you know you have some localities some specific small area where you know that animal has a different phenotype than than the rest of the population of that same species right so it mm-hmm. could just be a micro micro locality type issue um that's you know it's hard to say but that that could be a potential explanation for that um it could also be that you know they're mislabeling them that's a potential problem yeah. that we 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 are aware of and and concerned about but uh maybe you know they just one came in as as strong and they're like they want more yellow sarongs we don't have yellow sarongs we'll slap sarong you know the label on that yellow animal and send it to them <laughs> i don't know um <laughs> right. i would probably mm-hmm. probably favor the first explanation over that explanation um, so, you know, that's, that's my thoughts on the, on the matter. But again, you know, that's kind of a weak area of mine of, of the different localities and kind of all these different phenotypic variations. And one, I guess one thing that, uh, Daniel Natou said that kind of stuck with me and, you know, he said that you see these, you know, this range of phenotypes across the whole continent or the whole Island of New Guinea, you know, um, mm-hmm. you can, and I, I kind of made a point of that in the book and I, I'm not sure how well that came through, but in the, um, last, well, the, the, uh, um, what's the chapter title there? The region, regional variation chapter. Um, I, I put a picture up, you know, it's a multi-panel picture of all these different chondros and they all have white spots all over them and they're from all different, you know, areas of chondro um, of, of, you know, the chondro habitat or whatever. So that was kind of Daniel Natusha's point is you can see, you know, white spots on individuals from all across their range. Um, right. yeah, you might see more focused white or, or splotches of white on Aru animals, but you can also see that in Bioc animals, you know, so it's a shared phenotype. So, um, you know, it's not necessarily the most or a hundred percent reliable indicator of, regionality right of their locality um 
so, you know, it's kind of difficult to say, well, an animal that has yellow is from this area, you know, because you can have yellow on the belly from different localities across the range. Um, so, you know, again, maybe it's just a micro locality that one collector knows about. Um, the white spot issue, that's, you know, that's a, that's a good, that's kind of a head scratcher because we've seen data on both sides. You know, some, some people will put two high white individuals together and mm -hmm. will get no white in the babies. And so they say, oh, you know, it just must not be heritable. Well, you know, pattern and color and things, all those kind of things are definitely heritable. And we know that, you know, there's, it, it might be complex in its heritability and it might be polygenic in nature. So it might be very difficult to prove from a single breeding. And I think Ryan Young has done some really nice work there where he, he's, he's kind of refined that and he's gotten animals that actually do have really nice white splotches on his Aru, his selective breedings and, and of Aru's. And so, you know, he's, he's kind of giving us evidence that it can happen. And I wonder, you know, if you get two animals from Aru, you know, Aru's a, a, it's a sizable island. It's not the smallest island in the world. So maybe you have, um, you know, some slightly different genetics and they don't line up properly. And so instead of focusing that white, you're actually diluting it through breeding those two animals together. Whereas if you bred animals that were collected in, you know, within a few hundred feet of each other, they might focus that white and you might get lucky and produce really high white animals. You know, it's hard yeah. to say. And, but I, I do think that, it, you know, and I, I wonder how many people have, have gotten, you know, third or fourth generation line bred animals that they've really tried to focus that white in until I see, you know, more of those kind of stories where, you know, I've bred this line for four generations and we see no white, even though the founder animals had really nice white spots, then I'll start thinking there's something maybe else to the story. But right now I'm thinking it's, it's gotta be something genetic in there and we just need to figure out the key or the right combination to get those genes to come out. Right. I mean, if sure. you breed an albino to a normal, all your babies are going to look normal. So you could say, mm -hmm. oh, no, there's no albino, you know, albino is not, not heritable. <laughs> not heritable but, yet. Right. Yeah. But until you breed those babies together, and then you'll see, you know, 25% on average of, of from each egg that turns out to be an albino. So, you know, that's, that's kind of, I think more work needs to be done, more line breeding, more locality breeding. And I think everybody's kind of focused on the phenotype. Um, kind of getting that crazy look, you know, the the black chondros or the high yellow, the lemon tree, you know, the high blues, all that mm. kind of designer stuff is kind designer of the works, yeah. That's been the focus for a long time rather than line breeding localities to get more white. You know, somebody said, oh, you can't do it. They bred two high white animals together and got low white or no white babies and said oh no this isn't worth chasing and so everybody's kind of had that attitude of well, i'm not going to go down that path because the last guy who did that didn't get any white out of his animals and you know that's a long process how long does it take to line breed something and focus in and, and then when you have you know the common captive practices where we're losing animals you know before they can breed too far out 
Um, you know, right. breed maybe one or two clutches and die. And then you're thinking, well, we need to work on our husbandry a little more to, you know, get it. So we're breeding out several generations, line breeding for certain traits. So in my mind, it's just way too early to call and a lot more work needs to be done. But my prediction would be if you line breed for a certain trait, you're probably going to see that trait come out more. I don't think there's any like special UV or dietary influence that's going to give you a high white snake. Not, you know, not no. saying that that's impossible because there's, there's some evidence to suggest that different temperatures or light intensities or things like that can influence color. And I think I included some of that in the, in the book, it was on scoloporus, you know, the fence lizards that have the blue yeah. bellies and different patches of colors on their body. Um, you know, that can be enhanced or changed. You know, you have uh, animals from cooler regions that are more green and ones from hotter regions have more blue, you know, things like that, um, where mm-hmm. temperature and, and environmental conditions can play a role in their color expression. And, you know, we all know that UV plays a nice role in color and maybe chondros bask more often. You know, we definitely know that the, the juvenile snakes are on the forest edge. They're diurnally active for the most part. So they're probably getting more UVB and uh, UV, you know, exposure. So do we give our juveniles UV light? Maybe we should, you know, that might be a, a good thing. And a lot of times we keep chondros in, um, you know, rack systems, especially if you've got, you know, 20 or 30 babies or something, it's really hard to keep them in cages with UV exposure. So, you know, we need to maybe rethink things. Maybe that's a paradigm shift that needs to be made. But again, the data is not there. We don't have that information. Maybe that's why um, females that were born in the wild and, you know, grew up as juveniles basking on the forest edge, they come into the United States they're, you know, more robust. Their babies don't have prolapses because they got that early exposure to UV light. You know, that's a possibility. Right. Who knows? Yeah. We, we need to we need to look into that. But you know, those kind of those kind of things are are possible. That's that's potentially you know maybe that's why the the wild caught animals don't lose their teeth because they had proper exposure to UV and they grew strong bones as juveniles and they moved around a lot and exercised. Who knows? You know, it's really. Uh, hard to say because nobody's really looked into that um, to find out or, or done studies to find out if that's the right way. And again, I think it would be really important to set up 20 chondros, 10 that get UV exposure and 10 that don't and compare them over five years, you know, and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Look see at their babies, better. see if there's differences with their babies. You know, if they, if the babies from the adults that were exposed to UV don't have prolapse and the others do, then you can maybe strongly say UV probably plays a role in prolapse. You know, that's something we need to consider and something we need to look into further and we can replicate that and other people can do the same study and find the same results and build that case, you know, and, and get that additional information. Or we can say, no, they were both the same. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Right. You know, UV might not be, but well, maybe the UV light you used wasn't the right light. Maybe you needed a more strong UV. Maybe you need to bask them in the sun, you know, put them outside for, a few hours a day or something, you know, there's a lot of different variables and it's sometimes not as simple as we like to make it in our minds. You know, sometimes somebody does a rinky dink exposure and says, Oh, I proved it. It doesn't work. You know? And uh, yeah, I just kind of laugh when people think that that's proven anything, you know, you have some data, the be all to end all. 
Yep. Use that to guide your next step. Use that to build on. But don't say, I figured it out. You know, I've solved the problem. <laughs> you've, gotten, you've gotten a little piece of data. You haven't finished the whole puzzle, right? Exactly. And this is I a mean, big puzzle. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of pieces to <laughs> this puzzle. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it'll be figured out in our lifetime, but, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope not. I mean, I, it's fun to learn more and to try different things and to move on. And uh, I, I don't know. I think I, I kind of envy the full-time breeders because that's something that they have a little more ability to do. I think they have more time, you know, when they, they're home with their collection all day or whatnot, or maybe they don't have the time. Maybe they're too busy <laughs> having to sell animals or whatnot. But maybe we think uh, they have the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's always a hard thing. Cause I always think, man, if I was a, pro breeder and all I was doing is sitting home breeding animals I'd be doing all these different studies and experiments and yeah when it comes <laughs> down to it I just like ah, I'm too busy I'm too lazy I'm too whatever <laughs> I should really make it happen right I did yeah. a few, few of those kind of studies I was trying I was trying to compare um, like feeding mouse tails versus mouse legs to anteresia babies to see if it would help jumpstart them better or see if they were healthier eating one over the other. And um, I did that for a while and didn't really see much of a difference, but I did probably didn't follow it out that far or didn't figure it out and I need to redo it. But, you know, and in science that happens all the time. You know, I just finished a study um, with my, you know, virology lab and, and I got these results. Like I tried to, characterize the model and I thought I had it figured out and I went to do the study testing a, a antiviral treatment you know against Zika virus and the study just failed miserably and I got all these you know just crappy data <laughs> like I'm like what, what the heck I thought <laughs> no. I had these thought I had these kinks worked out you know this is a $30,000 experiment and oh man so that's a little Ooh. bit of a headache and that's how science <laughs> is you know you have you have a lot of failures you have a lot of things that just don't pan out or didn't don't work and you're spinning your wheels both my uh, master's and my phd um, projects that i started on didn't pan out and uh, i had to start all over and do different projects you know and different uh, viral systems so you know i there's a reason they call it research because you keep redoing <laughs> everything re it's, it's never-ending process it's a little oh, frustrating man. at times but yeah, that's the way it goes. So. I'll bet you uh, when you finally do get to that, uh, you know, successful experiment, that probably is like, uh, you know, super joy if you've gone through <laughs> all these headaches of going up and, you know, down. <laughs> or or yeah, sweet yeah. relief because it's over now. So, oh, yeah, yep. that too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank God. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm I'm a firm believer in duality. I don't – I think – your joys are much more full when you have pain and hardship getting there. You know, it doesn't, oh, yeah. doesn't mean a lot if it's handed to you, right? If you don't go That's through the right. struggle, go through the process, slog through the mud and get to your destination. If you don't do that, if you just kind of, you know, you're whisked away and you magically beam there, you just don't have the same experience, right? Yeah. <laughs> your joy right, is Owen? not as full. Yes. Isn't that right, Owen? The same. Snowflake you? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I'm glad we have time for this. Uh, glad you reminded me, Eric. 
<laughs> uh, hoping you guys we being a radio show of snowflakes, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, I laughed so hard at that. <laughs> I knew that was gonna come back to bite me, right? Yeah, that was that was that was a good one. I'm glad you guys got the joke. That was a, yeah, of course. <laughs> I, I got the reaction I was looking for. So, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I guess. So we're in overtime now, and there was a couple okay. uh, things that I wanted to hit on before, you know, we, we jump off. But um, sure. so I guess the one thing I, I'm you're the well, I guess because you're the most current book and maybe the research is uh, that you were had available to you um, was different than research they had in the past. But, you know, you actually separate out. Uh, there being two species of, of chondros um, mm. or green trees. And uh, look, I'm still calling them chondros. And, uh, yes, you are. <laughs> um, <laughs> or maybe even more. I think Daniel Natouche separates it out into four or five that he may think that, that or whatever. But um, what were the yeah. papers that, that did do this? Um, mm. And, my feeling has always been is why you see all these crazy phenotypes with, uh, with GTPs is that they're actually hybrids. And that's why mm, when you yeah. mix in a Rue and a Bioc, you get this crazy look. I bet you if I mixed, uh, uh, a Bioc and a carpet Python, I'd probably get equally as crazy looks. What are you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. And... No, I, I, um, I totally agree. Like I, I remember, Somebody back a while ago bred, I think it was ball python to blood python, and the first, and then they, and then they kept those babies and bred them back to each other, right? A complete hybrid, and some of these things, I think they called them angry balls or something, like they were kind of messy, <laughs> oh, icy, but yeah, but the first, the first generation was, you know, what maybe you'd expect, kind of a mix between, but the second generation had like this huge just crazy variability there was all these weird colors and patterns and it was like you were thinking man i might want to make some of those they just look so cool you know hmm. um mm-hmm. and, and you know i would talk to ben ben's the ben's the guy that talk about when you're talking about taxonomy or genetic and stuff like i mean he's a genetics professor like that guy knows his stuff so ben moral is the man to talk to but so i'll try to regurgitate what i've learned from him and the best i can but um this this hybrid vigor or hybrid, uh, you know, the, the phenotypes that you get when you make hybrids are, are much more um, uh, pronounced. You know, you have much, much more variability, especially when you get into the second generation hybrid crosses, you start to even further that genetic diversity and, and mixing up and, and lining up with genes. Um, you know, we've got so many genes and when you have two parents, you, you get about half of the genes from each but then when you start to breed those siblings to you know to each other which of course we don't do with with people at least not since the english in the middle ages or whatever (laughs) you kind of got away from that hemophilia yeah for good reason um you know we we don't see those and you know even in people i think it takes a few generations before you start to see serious consequences of that in reptiles you know we can get out several generations of inbreeding and you know which is definitely obvious with our um carpet pythons and anything from australia that's been you know that was brought in in the 70s or 80s and have been kind of stagnant since then with a very limited founder pool um you know we still see 
pretty good results and we still have pretty healthy and robust offspring and we even though we try to mix and match as much as we can we still have that limited gene pool but uh when you start mixing between the species you line up genes that really haven't been lined up for probably millions of years or you know genes that were lost from one species that are retained in another or or that have changed in one species versus another and you start to line those up and you start to see crazy variation and and weird phenotypic uh, expression right mm -hmm. and that was really evident with these angry balls and uh yeah. i think I, I think you nailed it right there is is you know, these, once they identified that there's two different species, to, to be a separate species or to have enough genetic diversity to split yourself or split a, split a, uh, what was thought to be one species into two species, you have to have a certain level of genetic variation. And so when you line those back up again, things that have been separated for millions of years, I think what, five or 10 million years, the, the different uh, species have been kind of separating or, or uh, evolving separately, um, you know, based on geography, you know, you got a big mountain range in the middle of the island. And, and so you're separating the North from the South and they, they go on their own evolutionary trajectory. Now, mm -hmm. what really frustrates me about taxonomy and about, you know, taxonomists, um, I mean, you've got Rawlings and Donnellan, who did all this fantastic work, demonstrated a huge amount of crypt, what they call cryptic variability in the green tree pythons and, and basically identify that there's uh, two different species and then they stop there. Like, two species. And then, well, well give them a name. Give them something we can go on. You know, give us more information here. So, you know, I, I don't know why they didn't name the two species and give the holotypes and the you know, the, all these different descriptions and show the separating characteristics between the two species that just wasn't done. Right. And so mm -hmm. I, I don't know why, and it kind of drives you crazy to, to think about that. Why didn't they just do it? And then yeah. now they're leaving it for old, uh, what's his bucket. He, sh he no. who shall not be named to, to name don't, those don't species, even, you know, give don't them don't a, even bring slap up. a name, uh, you know, Adeline Hoserai or whatever on the name. Oh, <laughs> he, he's, God. So <laughs> it's really, kind of frustrating from that aspect, but you know, I don't know taxonomy. That's not my field. So I don't know how it really works there. And I've, I've asked that of Ben and other smarter people than myself. And, uh, and so I've kind of gotten explanations as to why that's done, but nothing that's really satisfied my anger at why they don't just name the dang things. But <laughs> so, and uh, there, but, but yeah, if you're taking a Southern species, the Viridus and you're breeding it to the Northern Azuria, um, you're going to get some wacky phenotypes. You're going to get some more uh, dramatic uh, phenotypes. And I think they probably like, you know, Daniel Latouche was talking about, they probably share a lot of the same basic pattern color um, genes. But once you start lining them up from two species that have been separated for, you know, millions of years, you're going to get some interesting and different combinations than you are with the ones who are locally, you know, near each other. And so, you know, we see that too. I, I, one of my favorite carpet pythons that I've ever seen was that one that uh, Deb um, uh, and Doug had over in Australia. Um, and they, they bred, I think Troy Kuligowski produced it, right? And it was this mutt carpet. It had diamond jungle, um, Coastal, inland, inland, yeah. Oh, God. I know which this, one you're talking this, about. <laughs> oh, 
Yeah, right? It's like I yes. saw this thing, and I'm like, that is the freaking coolest carpet I've ever seen. What is it? And he's like, it's everything. It's all of them, right? And so <laughs> you know, you're lining, oh, you're lining up all these genes, and, you know, inlands are probably genetically diverse enough that they could be their own species, right? They, I think there was, they were like four pi- – 4.9% different, and they needed like 5% to be cut off to a new species based on uh, the the Ben uh, Corey uh, thesis or whatever. So, you know, these arbitrary cutoffs, like there's lumpers and there's splitters. You know, you got some taxonomists that like the drop of a hat, they'll split things into two species. And others are like, no, no, they need to be 20% difference. You know, if if that were the case, we'd be, we'd be, you know, the same species as chimps and gorillas and orangutans or something. So, you know, that, that's kind of goes out the window there. But so that's one thing that's maddening about taxonomy is, is there's not a real consistency to between different groups of animals, like, and also between like, you know, you have like skink guys that, that split everything or, or that name, you know, they name all these. And then you've got the Python guys who are really, you know, conservative and don't want to split anything and want to keep them, you know, even the subspecies they want to get away with and just call them all Spilota, you know, oh, and, God. And really, you know, <laughs> who cares, you know, really who cares? We know what a diamond Python is and what it does and what it looks like. And we know what a, a jungle carpet or a, or a Darwin's car, you know, we know all these differences in, in their phenotype and kind of this regional variance idea. Although you go up into Cape York and you can find uh, an animal that looks exactly like an animal you'd find in Darwin. Um, you know, that kind of, that, that kind of got my head scratching, like, okay, maybe there, there is something to this. Maybe there's <laughs> variability, you know, local regional variability is, is not as cut and dry. And that was one of the, early conclusions that I came to writing the carpet python book was that, you know, it's not as easy as we want it to be. It's not as easy as saying, okay, this jungle from mission beach looks like this. And this jungle from Tully looks like this. And this coastal from Atherton looks like this. You know, it's not as easy as that. It's not as cut and dry and you can have a coastal and a jungle within a few miles of each other, you know, and, right. and they could have very similar phenotypes and how do you draw the line? Where do you draw the line? You know? Mm. And I think that, that argues to kind of the locality idea. You know, I want carpets that came, both of them came from a certain locality within, you know, a couple miles of each other. Cause if you go 10 miles, away from you know you have almost like another locality when you're driving through that uh, area around cans you can drive through four or five different jungle localities within a couple hours you know (laughs) so right you know what we what we want to make and say this is what this locality looks like is probably an oversimplification and then i found out like some a lot of times when they confiscate carpet pythons the mm-hmm. the uh, rangers will dump them in a common location. Oh <laughs> so my god! <laughs> potential different localities, and they're dumping them. Um, it's all meaningless. You know? <laughs> oh yeah. wow! So so they're probably doing stuff to stir up the the locality idea even further. You know, man right. influences and and all that habitat up there is all fragmented, and and I mean a lot of it's sugarcane land and you know it's like farmland and there's very there's like patches of forest that has kind of remained intact or or been preserved but most of the area up in the cans area is all disturbed habitat and and messed up so you know to to figure out that is you know 
it's almost past the point of, you know, really identifying key characteristics of locality. But there is something kind of cool about saying, I know where my animals came from, or this is, you know, this is the area they were collected in. I know that's been big with different colubrid species like the gray bandits. You know, yeah. you got to have certain, you know, roads. Mile markers. Only be within this, this street. Yeah, mile markers. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't have within that mile marker and you breed it with something else, you're just some, you know. Sacrilege. Whatever. Yeah. yeah, it's, it's horrible. Yeah. It's, it's, that animal's worthless. And, you know. You Frankenstein. Yeah, you <laughs> exactly, yeah. You, you've got yeah. a hybrid. On, and, well, I found them five miles apart. No, that doesn't work. That's not good enough. <laughs> so, I think, you know, uh, that's. When it when it comes down to it, that might be the most uh, the best we can do with localities because genetics and and all those kind of things we think oh that solves the issue that figures everything out but again it really doesn't you know like right you mm-hmm. almost get more confusion and, and you know you can see that evidence I, I really like that paper that the Barkers put out um, fairly recently where they looked at all the Python um, taxonomy and tried to formulate. Uh, a consensus tree of, you know, which species was the most, um, you know, basal and which was the most evolved. And, you know, that was, that was really interesting work. And it's really hard to come to consensus because, you know, they'll use different genetic regions. They'll use different, um, you know, whatever it's, the species, the the studies differ so substantially that it's really hard to, to draw commonality from, from all these studies, but I, I thought they did a really nice job with that. Yeah. So I, I yeah. Know, taxonomy kind of makes me pull my hair out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, just a snake in a box, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> another thing that uh, I found interesting in the book, um, I don't know why I just never clicked, but when I read it, it just, it clicked with me um, that, as they mature, they switch mostly to mammalian diet, and this corresponds with the shift into adult coloration, the time of day that they feed, and then a call to luring um, is not used as much. Uh, is there what, – what do you think is going on there? Isn't that, that, I mean, just think, thinking about that, that's such a cool concept yeah. that all these things change and shift, and it just matches with their move into the you know larger prey and into the jungle and things. It's really cool. And the studies that have been done to like suggest that a bird's eye can see a yellow or a red individual less easily in the dappled light of the forest edge compared to a, a green individual in the same set. I mean, that's just cool stuff, right? Nature is so cool. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, the cattle learning, I mean, obviously what are lizards looking for they're looking for little wriggling insects right and so if it's if it sees like a caterpillar what it looks like a caterpillar crawling up the tree it's going to go after that i think one of one of the coolest new discoveries or more recent discoveries has been that spider-tailed viper i love that ran isn't that freaking amazing like i mean it's tail and the way it moves its tail looks like a spider walking around on a rock yes. and it tricks tricks birds into trying to catch the spider. So, you know, these cow lures are really, I mean, just fantastically complex. And, uh, you know, the, the baby green tree python will often have a different colored tail than, you know, the tail of an adult. They'll have more black on it or different, you know, spots and things like that, banding. So, you know, and it's moving this thing like a little worm because it's trying to attract a lizard. 
And, uh, you know, they, they showed that in captive animals, you know, they were collected and in a jar and there's an anole walking through the room, you know, just loose in the room and starts wiggling its tail and they start to notice these things. You know, that's pretty cool from, from some of the old literature I was reading. And then, uh, you know, the adults will still do it. I'll still, you know, you still see it occasionally, but, you know, mammals, uh, although some of the species that I was reading on some of these Cape York uh, mammals um, were insectivorous, so it still could potentially work. But, you know, nocturnally, I think they're less keyed in by sight. You know, the mammals are kind of walking around the forest and they might you know, hear something move, so they run over and grab it and chew it up, you know. So they're they're less visually stimulated than, say, a skink on the forest edge in the daytime, right? So it makes sense from that, that idea that as you transition into a more nocturnal behavior, you're going to stop having behaviors that are more visually um, stimulating and, and you're just going to sit and wait and just sit in ambush position near a trail where you think a mouse is going to come through or, a, or a, you know, a rodent or a mammal is going to come past. And so, you know, their, their behavior uh, switches in that way as well. So, uh, you know, I think that's kind of the basis of that switch of the, the, the adults don't wiggle their tails much because during the night there's, you know, nothing to really chase after their tail and, and be caught. So, um, so it's like daytime hunting versus nighttime hunting. Yeah. And I, and mm-hmm. I think sometimes, you know, some, some green individuals will feed during the day. And I think it was females were more likely to do that feed during the day. And so maybe, you know, your females might wiggle their tail more often because they're still hunting during the day and they'll overlap their juvenile diet with their adult diet more as well, probably because they need more calories than a male does because they've got a bigger job to do and they need more energy to do that job. So, you know, they're going to hunt during the day and get some lizards and then they're going to go hunt in the night and get a mammal. You know, they're going to take what they can get and they're going to use the cow to lure during the day and maybe not so much at night. Um, yeah, you know, that's kind of what, yeah. what uh, the conclusions I've come to in that regard. Yeah. Very cool. So uh, I think we only got like two more questions for you, Justin. And uh, it is obviously the questions are, are there, is there any plans for another book in the future, whether it be on green trees or not? <laughs> um. I, you know, I've always got some ideas on projects I want to work on. I, um, you know, trying to think of what, what's next. I, I do like to have some kind of project and I've actually had one that I've been working on for, for about as long as I worked on the green tree. And again, it's been a matter of time and my co-author's time, but I'm working right, right now and have been working for longer than I care to admit on a okay. knobtail, ge- knobtail gecko. Knobby. Uh, genus. Nefurus, yeah. So that's, that's awesome. That's kind of the next uh, project, and you know, I I need to just crack down and get going again. And I've I've actually recently started to work on that, and I'm writing that with Steve Sharp uh, from. Cool. Uh, he's one of my kind of loosely associated business partners from Arizona. He's kind of the the lizard guy of Australian addiction reptiles, and he kind of. He, he got a job at the zoo, and so he stopped keeping a lot of stuff in captivity, and he got really busy with his zoo job. And so, but now they're kind of telling him he needs to be writing more, and so I think that's 
he's he's been writing more on the book and stuff. So hopefully we'll get that uh, out in the near future. And uh, but that's it's, awesome. Uh, similar similar to the carpet book. I mean, there's several species of of knobtail geckos. You know, I think seven or eight or nine. I, I'm not sure. I can't remember the exact count, but <laughs> there's there's several, right? Just like the carpets have several different subspecies or species within that right. group. So it gets a little more complex as compared to a single or, or two species book like the green tree python or a four or five species book like the complete children's python. So, you know, different different things to think about and worry about. But I think the main thing is, is Steve's busy and so uh, and I've been busy as well and I've been writing the green tree book so the so the uh, knobtail book got put on the back burners a little bit but we've just kind of revitalized ourselves and are getting back into that now and hopefully we'll have that done in the next year or two <laughs> so Very I'm not promising cool. a, a speedy uh, finish to that oh, okay. <laughs> hopefully hopefully in in the near future, uh, geologically speaking, <laughs> you don't want to give us a hard date, like and like have to really push yourself to get it. <laughs> exactly, May second, got... uh, twenty eighteen. <laughs> there you done. go, perfect, <laughs> done. Uh, yeah. And I guess the other question would be, where can listeners find the Green Tree Python book and get their copy? Yeah, so that that was another thing. So. We published the two, the children's Python and the carpet Python book with eco publishing. And that was kind of, that was a great experience. And Bob Ashley's a knowledgeable guy. I mean, he's been, he's one of the, you know, pioneers in the herpetocultural industry. You know, he started all the NARBC shows and just does a great job. So, and he's got it, you know, he's got his publishing company and we felt really confident to go with him and, and he was really supportive in, in that process and gave us a lot of um, freedom as authors. And that was a good experience. But, um, so, but he had the complete Condro and the more complete Condro. So I thought, well, he's probably not going to want to publish another Condro book. So, mm-hmm. and then I thought, you know, I'm, I'm interested in self-publishing. So I, I looked around at all the options and I found uh, one that I thought would be um, one of the best options. And that was uh, create space uh, create space. So my book can be found on createspace.com or um, it can be found on Amazon. And that's one of the big distributors that creates create spaces associated with Amazon. And so they have automatic uh, marketing through Amazon, which has been really nice because I, you know, they ship the books and all that kind of thing. So you can still get a signed copy if you'd like. And some people are into that. And I've sent out several signed copies to friends in Australia and, you know, across the country and things. So um, sent a few out to Eric who took care of them real quick and sold them all at the Tinley show. So that was sure I appreciate open. that. Yeah. They, <laughs> yeah, no problem. They were going fast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was thinking, man, I should have sent him more. And I did the same thing at a local Utah show. I brought, I brought my complete carpet and complete children's pythons books to shows in Utah before. I've never uh-huh. sold one. And I brought, I so I thought, oh, I'll bring a few of these green tree python books. I brought five of them and sold out in the first day. And I'm like, huh, I don't have to this stuff, you know? Like, uh-huh. And it was like. A, two-hour drive back home so and I was staying at my parents who were only 30 minutes away so I'm like I'm not going to drive four hours to go get more books so mm-hmm. <laughs> I just right. tell them to order off my website so if you want a signed copy you can go to australianaddiction.com and there's a link there that you can submit a little form and it'll give you give me your information and I can email you and work out a you know how many copies you want and where you want them sent and then just you know send the money through paypal or whatever so cool. Yeah, it works out well. Awesome. And for the 
the packages that I send uh, can do, you know, especially for people overseas where it costs like 30 bucks to send one book overseas and I can send up to four. So, you know, if you want to get a few friends in on it and, and I can send uh, several books over at once and maybe give a little quantity discount as well if, if uh, you know, more than a couple copies are sold. So uh, I'm a little flexible in that regard too. So cool. you can get it through Amazon, through CreateSpace website, or through my website, AustralianAddiction.com. Very cool. So thanks for asking. I appreciate that, you guys. I yeah. really appreciate you having me on here and let me talk about green trees. I, You know, you just get so excited about these things and be able to <laughs> talk about them with like-minded individuals is a pleasure. So thanks. Absolutely. Thanks, you guys, for keeping keeping this going. I mean, uh, you know, I whine about missing one Halloween. You guys miss probably a lot of different things having to do this uh, weekend, wake out. So I shouldn't whine too much. I'm maybe I'm the snowflake here, right, guys? So yeah, well, yeah. now we're good. I'm the one no, crying about missing my missing my poor Halloween. Right? <laughs> no uh, worries. Well, it's a, yeah, it's a pleasure as always, you guys. Thanks so much for having me on. Really great talking with you guys. Definitely Absolutely. always Thanks, want you back on, Justin. Yep. Yep. Anytime. Anytime you wanna need to fill a space, I am a good filler. Well keep <laughs> okay. writing books. Keep, keep writing books, we'll keep bringing you back. I mean, you know, it's yeah. fine. Do. Yeah. 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 We can oh, talk so many cool cool reptiles. Yeah, there's so many cool reptiles we can do a show on just about anything. I get excited about that. So I don't know a lot about most stuff, but yeah, anyway, I, I can blab on about it maybe. <laughs> <laughs> all right guys all right thanks, thanks we'll talk justin we'll talk, we'll talk to you soon all right, all right. bye very cool very cool it's an awesome book for uh the listeners anybody out there that hasn't uh gotten a copy i would highly suggest it there's tons of the natural history is the thing that i like probably the most um lots of cool stuff in there um and you don't really get to see a whole lot of information on that. You know, there's a lot of captive, uh, you know, husbandry and all that kind of stuff, which is in there too. But uh, mm. natural history for me is kind of, uh, kind of a cool thing. So definitely check it out if you're interested in chondros or even if you're not, man, still, still a good, uh, good thing. Um, I don't know what it is about Tuesday nights, Owens, but lots of deals happen behind the scenes. What did you do? I will message you after the show, but you're uh, damn right you will. <laughs> oh shit! I'd uh, kill you if you right. did something on it. All right, go on. Never mind. Finish. Yeah. <laughs> I I always like to get your reaction during the show. So wait, I'm gonna I'm gonna message you. Just, are we gonna do this right now? Are we okay? <laughs> go over my thingy. <laughs> really? Are you really? <laughs> uh, yeah. Really? The first yeah. one is eh. The first one, I whatever. I uh, first off, I'm you know I, that I okay. The second one, really? <laughs> yes, pretty cool, huh? But why? <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> <laughs> the same reason why you wanted a I don't know a Gila monster or whatever the hell. Well, but no, anyway. Gila monsters are on. No, all right, we'll talk about uh, this later. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. So. uh so yeah, for for next week, uh, we have Casper uh, joining us. Yes, <laughs> yes, the mighty Viking. Yes. 
Is yeah, uh, so I'm we so might happy. be doing a special time. I'm not I'm not 100 sure on that. I gotta I gotta touch base with them, but it might be like when we do it at six or seven or whatever. Oh, so yeah, Casper's yeah. not falling asleep in the middle of the show. Yeah, we don't want that to happen again. So yeah. Um, we're going to talk about Poplin Pythons, Bowling Pythons, and of course, uh, his new, uh, love obsession with, um, I don't even know what the scientific name for them are, but, uh, all the Gila beaded lizards and all, do you know, well, do you know what that is? Uh, the Gila, no, we'll get there later, but beaded right. and then, uh, he's got lace monitors. So we're going to pick his brain about those. Cause you don't, I mean, that, that's a black and white striped croc monitor, pretty much. Is what it is. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, So that'll be cool, man. He's uh, he's an awesome guy. I was so glad that we got to catch up with him in um, over in uh, Tinley Park. I'm glad that he actually yeah. made the trip out. So. Uh, so, yeah, we'll be talking with Casper uh, and uh, hopefully he'll give us some good sound bites for uh, some future uh Always got some uh, good zingers to throw in there, but um, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to him. And then, uh, yeah, we're pretty much book solid for the year out. So uh, I think in a, I said a couple weeks, we're going to do our usual, our yearly, um, you know, breeding Python episode type of deal. Right. Um, right. So uh, yeah, that's always fun. So if you're, you know, interested in, um, you know, breeding carpets or breeding pythons, uh, you know, carpet pythons, me and Owen could talk all day about, um, it's the, yeah. uh, other some of the other that species we that we're delving into that, that yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> we can only speculate, <laughs> uh, on, <clears throat> but, um, yeah, it should, uh, it should be some cool, cool Cool stuff. It's always uh, tons of info in in those little uh, jam packed episodes. You know, just like mm-hmm. even silly things. Like I've been writing it down just so we could share. But like setting up babies. Like you know, we talk about you know putting it in a tub. But like really the details of setting it up. Like you know, I use a red sticker and a blue sticker to designate boys <laughs> or girls. You know, those kind of things. Um, <laughs> What I I I, I put them in a bin. With <laughs> <laughs> See, some people yeah. do it one way, some people do it the other. I actually got yeah. that trick uh, from Matt Minnesota. I saw him doing it. And I was like, "What are you doing there?" And he's like, "You know, well, I mean, red is." Well, I don't know. I listen, I hated the stickers because I hate putting stickers on tubs and then not being uh-huh. able to get them off because I tried stickers. So right. I will pop them and separate them immediately, boys and girls. And then they get a cage card, and then that's it. They have the baby number. They have their sex on the on as part of their baby number, and then they're good. They're in the little bin, so that's it. So they are assigned a card and a number immediately. So no stickers, ah. but yes. Again, yeah, just different ways to do it, and that's that's the kind of thing I think people like to hear. You know, it's like they can, you know, uh, listen to the way you do it, the way I do it, the way you've seen other people do it, the way I've mm-hmm. seen other people do it, and then they sort of can make their own system, you know, from from the different things. But, you know, just things like that uh, we're going to talk about. And uh, so, we cool. so who knows? Maybe we'll get another guest in there to throw in and do a roundtable type of deal, you know, like not necessarily talking about 
a guest, but have somebody on that's talking with us about breeding, something like that. Grab one of our generic, grab them at the last minute people. You know, yeah. it's got Matt, Rob, they're, you know, it's, uh, various other people. So Sure. Yeah. Um, okay. So as far as us, um, 2018 calendars uh, are uh, for people that ordered them. They're shipped out uh, for people that um, uh, are still wanting to order them. Uh, you can PayPal me. Uh, it's 15 bucks uh, shipped in the U.S., 20 outside the U.S., um, you know, just send me a message on Facebook. Uh, it's probably the easiest way. And, um, yeah, we can hook you up. Um, we're only two months away, which is crazy from the new oh, year. Crap, <clears throat> man. <laughs> time goes quick. Uh, I know. so our website, uh, MoreliaPythonRadio.com. If you have any questions, comments, uh, show suggestions, et cetera, you can send them to, uh, info at MoreliaPythonRadio.com. Um, and as far as myself, EBMorelia.com, uh, I think that maybe I, – I think I'm going to update some available babies. Um, Uh-oh. And then uh, I, I got about, what, maybe – what do you say, like two, three weeks? Two weeks probably tops for shipping. And then – Yeah, it was done. cold this morning. Yeah. So. So and I sent uh, out a pair. I sent out a pair of babies today, and I was uh-huh. twitchy. So yeah. you know that's yeah. Yeah, it always makes me nervous. Heat pack, no heat pack. You know, it's just like uh, well, you punch a hole in the box. You don't punch a hole. in the box. You don't punch a hole in the box. How many holes do you punch in the box? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. I got you. So I just shut it down until the springtime. Well, but, uh, let me put it this way: today I shipped, but today is one of the only days where I've actually paid the extra like $20 to have the animals insured. Okay. So. All right. Yeah. I mean, you know, we all have our uh, windows of, uh, of when we ship oh, or don't yeah. ship, but uh, as we uh, get into is, November, that'll get shut down. Yeah. Yeah. Probably three weeks into November. Well, probably the week of Thanksgiving, I, I, that would be my word. That's it. That, it stops yeah. because you wouldn't want to ship anything during Thanksgiving. That's just silly, but you know, some people do. That's just how I do it. Yeah. Anyway, ebmorelia.com. Check me out Facebook, Instagram, you know, that whole deal. Uh, email is Eric at ebmorelia.com. That's all I got. Cool. What I got is you guys go to rogue-reptiles.com. Check all the stuff we have going on over there. I will have the breeding journal up to date this week when I figure out what the hell I'm doing with certain ones that I keep adding. So we'll start that. At least we'll have something up there. Jesus. Um, also any babies that we have for sale are up currently on rogue We will be retaking some of the pictures and adding new ads as well as uh, putting the ads up on different classified sites, probably within a week or so. Uh, like Eric said, we will be shutting down shipping soon. Uh, the next show that I have that I'm vending is the December Hamburg Reptile Show. I will be attending this weekend's Habit or Grace show. So if you are down in that area you want a baby delivered, that can be done free of charge. And there's a white flames in there somewhere. I'll figure that all out for you guys later. So that's all we got. That's, uh, so what we will say is thanks, everybody, for listening. And we're going to catch everybody back here next week for some more Morelia Python Radio. Good night. <laughs>